Welcome to the Literary License Podcast Retrospective as we explore anthologies. Anthologies have been around since the 1800s with classics by Poe, Hawthorne, Stevenson, and Lovecraft to name a few. Motion pictures have been exploring anthologies since the 1930s until today, with even television using the format. Come with us as we celebrate the anthology films through the ages. Welcome to the Literary License Podcast, and today we are discussing Night Gallery from 1969 and Twilight Zone the Movie from 1983. Before we get started, let's see who we have with us. We have Vicki Ray with us. Hi, everybody. And Keith Chago is with us as always. Hello. And during the anthology series, I will be your host. I am Joe Randazzo. And before we get started on everything else, let's find out what everyone's been up to. Uh, Starting with you, Keith, what have you been up to? Well, I'll get settled in. My cat's arrived, so everything's fine there. And the pieces of his life back together after and they're, they're, slow, they're slowly being knitted back together, so that's fine. I was interviewed for an online computer site about scripting computer games, so that'll be out in March. So if you want to see me sound more banal than normal, imagine you'll probably see it there. And then I've been actually going through like free movie apps here in Dallas. You found Tubi, Joe. <laughs> oh, did not have me on Tubi, actually, which is excellent. But I found this one called Movie Land. If you're looking for old black and white and old movie and uh, an old 30s crime. And I mean, I watched The Ghost of Mr. Chicken last night because I love that I movie. I still haven't seen that. I'm glad it had Night Gallery on it because I couldn't find yeah, it. Had, it has Night Gallery on it and stuff like that. I didn't hear it. I never heard of Movie Land, but it's got all of my favorites. Like, and it's free. And it's free. I mean. You can't go better than free. And then you And then been watching Riku was they have they're doing a Universal Monsters. So I've been that's on like nonstop. So I have that playing in the background when working. You know, they had the bat with Boris Karloff. They have all it's all the universal one. All the Frankenstein's ghost or whatever. I didn't even know that. And Blood of Frankenstein, Abbott Costello Meat. They had Creature from the Black Lagoon one, two, and three, and so on. Horror Drive ins another good one too, app. That's got some goodies in there. And then, and then uh, I think um, a couple of days ago was all the Tremor movies. So I watched those. Back I've been back. watching all the Tremor movies too. I, I'm just I'm such a nerd. I swear to God. You know, the thing is, is like even the bad ones are enjoyable. I mean, I like them. I mean, doing... it, they're like, they're like Sharknado. They're fucking stupid as hell, but entertaining. And you like everybody in the movie just about. Well, the, the, the first two, I think, are legitimately great movies. When, when you get to the third one, now it's got the ass blasters. It's like, okay, this is getting weird. Yeah, but, <laughs> I, I, but I like Michael Gauss. I mean, let's face it. I mean, Family Ties guy. I mean, it's he's like in his element. Yeah, but I I do kind of miss Fred Michael Gross, and I also miss Fred Ward a lot. Isn't Michael Gross in all of them though? Yeah, he's I haven't seen all of them yet. Yeah, he's in all of them. He's the, he's the yeah. more consistent one. Fred Ward, I think he's in like three of them. He does one and two, and then he drops off, and I think they bring him back at some point. So, but. But Fred Ward, I mean, he was in everything. I mean, Henry and June and, you know, comedies and, and of course, Robert Altman films. And then he kind of is gone. It's like, where did he go? (laughs) So, but he fell out of the mainstream and had to go back to doing the Tremors movies that he didn't want to (laughs) do. Yeah. 
but I, I like Fred Ward. It's all, there's always something very likable about him. But um, he just honestly, died recently, did he not? Yeah, he died like a year or two ago. Oh, okay. God, well, I, I, I haven't seen anything new lately. <laughs> okay. Yeah, 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 I, I, I want to say he died. Well, he was only older. in his 60s, right? No. Yeah, he wasn't that old. He wasn't that old. And he, yeah, it was during, it was, I want to say it was during COVID. That's, I want to think it's after COVID for some reason. Maybe. I don't, I, I don't know. But, but yeah, he passed away very recently. And I'm getting very excited because Ari Aster is in the middle of filming his new film called Eddington. Don't know much about it. So looking forward because that means something to look forward to at the end of the year, apparently. Oh, it's coming out that quick, huh? Yeah. Did yeah. we ever have him on? No, we didn't because um, he was going to come on during COVID. That's but then, right. That's but then right. he got, he was in the middle of making, he was in the middle of producing or making something. Cause he just, he just joined a producing company with AT4, AT4 for television stuff. So he, he started doing that. So that's the reason why. And I think he was doing, oh, he was on, he was on the tour for Midsummer. We should try to get him back. Oh, that was that was that came out I think right before COVID, didn't it? That was like yeah. 2019, right before during yeah. summer, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, a, a better sequel to the original Wicker Man than the actual sequel to yeah. the Wicker Man. Is that how you viewed it? Oh yeah, <laughs> it's a. I mean, not really a sequel, a spiritual sequel, maybe, but yeah. I, my favorite see the, part was the guy dressed up in the bear suit when the fire started. <laughs> Wait, are you thinking of? Are you thinking? Of, like, oh, I'm like, thinking of Midsummer. Midsummer. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Man. I mean, uh, man is what they put at Rip Rip Buck, hear us up in the Wicker Man. Well, Mel Gibson, who else played it? No, maybe not Mel Gibson. No, it wasn't Mel Gibson. Uh, there was um, Woodward and Christopher the classic Lee. Wicker Man, and then Nicolas Cage did a remake. Nicolas Cage, that was the remake. Yeah. Yeah, but that, that version's awful. Unless that, you're, you know, I didn't like it compared to the original. Sit there and make fun of it. The, the original's fantastic. And I feel like Midsummer is a good spiritual sequel. To the original Wicker Man, I love the original Wicker Man. I mean, any any movie where Britt Eklund gets completely naked and uh, dancing around the room, spanking herself, I'm all in. I mean, I I mean, we have been talking about doing a season of WTF or What the Fuck movies, and I think the Wicker Man kind of falls into that. WTF. That's definitely, definitely a What the Fuck movie. I de- yeah, I definitely want uh, like I, I have some suggestions too because because there's movies by like Jess Franco, Joe D'Amato, and I'm like, we got to cover some of those. There's yeah. there's a lot of them. We're, that's an endless list. Like like watching Spider Baby, we got to cover that. Where you have. You know the 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 weird mutant creature and Al Cliver uh, wrestling around naked at the end of the movie, like fighting naked on an island. Like, wait a minute, we're just flopping dicks. What, what is this doing in my horror movie? <laughs> I mean, there's quite a few of them. I mean, I would love to cover like Demon Seed would fit in that as well, where oh, Julie yeah. Christie gets raped by a computer. Or what about Inseminoid or Humanoids from the Deep? Inseminoid, that was so disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> I watched that the other day. And I go, what is that? <laughs> there was a weird time in the late seventies. Aliens had demon rape movies because <laughs> we had uh, the Entity with Barbara Hershey. We had yeah. uh, oh god, what's the other one with um uh, that one? Devil, the Devil's right Mistress. There were a couple of them around that time. I was like, what are we doing exactly? Mm-hmm. Hasu yeah. would probably fit into that the Japanese film I'm sorry but humanoids yeah, from the deep those sloppy fucking monsters jumping on naked teenage girls we, we could do that as a make remake because Corman had it remade in 95 as a TV movie for Showtime they only had two yeah. outfits to share between them to do the I know that's fantastic <laughs> one of my favorite episodes of uh, The Last Drive-In is, uh, is uh, 
the episode where he has Corman on because they're they're discussing Humanoids of the Deep and Little Shop of Horrors, the original one. Yeah. The fucking fun episode. Yeah, well, there's I mean, so many things out there. Humanoids in the deep that uh, has that actor in it. Oh, what's his name? And if anybody's listening, we're always open to suggestions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially for what the fuck movies. We're definitely going to. Yeah, there's going to be stuff that I, I, I try to watch like so much stuff. And I'm like, dare we ever stuff. try the Serbian film? Think about That's a Serbian. Not, that might get us taken off of YouTube. <laughs> well, yeah, the, only problem, the only problem I found with Serbian that movie is like it's there to like shock, but it's I didn't like it. I didn't exactly. like it at all, but exactly. I watched I say, it. Like, I don't feel it's a good movie though. No. It wasn't a good movie. It was just horror. It was traumatic, especially the. Birth. But but the thing is, if they added a little a little bit more character development in it, not just like okay, it's basically just set scene. I mean, set scene, set scene, set scene, set scene strung together. The director and, said it, when he made it. He was talking about how the sex trafficking was over in the Iron Block countries. And that was what that's what his premise was. I don't know. Well, he said to basically get um, developed a little bit more character development. So that way you're I mean, you're sickened by what you're watching it. But in, at the same time, you're not feeling anything. Yeah, you're bored by it. I yeah. was horrified by the bur- as a woman. I don't ever pull the woman card often. But as a woman, that one scene I found so distasteful. Well, <laughs> Nothing gives me like that. I'm not saying the imagery in it isn't horrific. I just think it's just poorly put together and just I, at some point I'm, I'm just, it, you just become numb to it because there's no like connect, like the connect. It, it, all it is is violence. It's a snuff film. That's all that is. Yeah. But I mean, the thing is you have films like last house and the left and you actually feel for those girls. Yeah. 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 And, and then, and then when of course, when the parents do the retribution at the end, you're like, you're rooting them on because you're feeling something for all this. Yeah. Going on. Yeah. And that, I mean, and that's a really low, you know, I mean, that was a film that was kind of put together. Well, the, but the, the effects of the Serbian film obviously weren't that good either. But, you know, you knew what was going on. They made sure you knew what was going on. Yeah. Even if, you, if you cared what was going on to her and they and they developed a little, I mean, all they had to do was like a 10 minute scene of her as a human being first. That would have been nice. And then and then when she's going through that. Then you would feel the heartache and the the emotional. That's sort of uh, like that. That's a, that movie's but... up there with Centipede. I I can't do that. I watched it once. I cannot do the other movies. I cannot watch Centipede again. I... Well, the problem the problem with Centipede for me basically is uh, it, it's another movie that's out there to shock. But the girls that it's happening to, they're fucking stupid. Yeah, <laughs> you well, know I what I mean. It's like when you, got, when you got stupid people keep put. You know, it's like trying to break away and keep making stupid decisions. And of course they get caught again and again and again until the finale, which is supposed to be terribly shocking. And you're kind of going, well, they kind of deserted for being so fucking stupid. And it's kind of, and he shouldn't feel that way. He should, that shouldn't be the feel that you feel when you want something like that. I would just want to be in front. That's all I got to say. I mean, there's there's a way to make these movies and uh, you know be shocking and actually be good because mm-hmm. you know even to a degree I spit on your grave. Right. You do feel for Camille Keaton. I haven't seen the right. remake, so I can't speak on the, any the, of the, the remakes. Is good, but the remakes good. and the sequels after that are pretty well done for that type. Well of, done, but they're not near as good. The, they, they, they're not near as good, good, but I'm saying good. that they they but they do develop the character. Yes, they do. So they so they you know. Though they are shocking and disgusting and is very degrading to women, but at the same time, you do have you do watch them with, with empathy for the main character. 
Though when Camille Keating comes back for the third to get her revenge again, that was, yeah, that was like, oh, we got Camille Keating and we haven't written a script yet. So let's write one now. Oh, we got her. <laughs> Had that feel. That's how it happened. Yeah. But, I, remember, I remember as a kid, there was a whole series of direct to video knockoffs that were made to try to look like I Spit on Your Grave movies. They were the I Will Dance on Your Grave series. There was one. Oh, that's the, you're right. You're right. There was one called I'll Kill You, I'll Bury You, I'll Spit on Your Grave 2, T-O-O. And the, the 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 top, it's shot on VHS. It's terrible. The the, the first few words, I'll oh, kill you, it. I'll bury you, are in very small letters. And then I'll Spit on Your Grave, T-O-O-2, were in giant letters across the VHS box. So that way, if you were walking by it in the videos, you'd be like, oh, I spit on your grave too. Grab it. And it's fucking not awful. <laughs> it's never seen that one. I mean, I quite like the original title of "I Spit on Your Grave," which is what "Day of the Woman." Day of the Woman, which is a better title for it, but it, they realized it probably wouldn't make any money. And I have to then say, it's probably one of the real horror films that's, you know, though it does have the degrading of the woman, but she gets her revenge, and she does it on her terms. Her so it, it is a female empowerment movie in a weird Girl, way. Like, what was that? What was that it's movie, absolutely. Big Driver? Or oh God, what was it? The guy, the big guy, Driver. Was it? He keeps raping her. Oh, big um, the, yeah, the, Stephen, the, Stephen, the Stephen King short oh, that they turned to Big Bad Driver. Or yeah, Big Driver. Big Driver. That was. Oh, that oh you got to watch it. That was. It was a um, Showtime TV movie, and it starred the girl, the woman from History of Violence and Coyote Ugly. Yeah, I cannot remember her name. But she, oh, okay, so it's a TV. All right, no. way done away, kind of. I wonder if it's on one of the the. I, I have a couple of uh, big Stephen King movie box sets that picked up a it's bunch a of different flat. ones. Like I found one of them at Target that had like fifteen movies on it. I found another one at Best Buy that had like twelve movies on it. But just you know, I, I have a few of them. I think so I Joan Jett's on the bartender in it too. Oh she? yeah, it has Joan Jett, Olympia Dukakis, and Mar- Maria Bello. Oh yeah, I, I don't know if I've ever told you. I I actually. I was on a I was on a movie as an extra in 2003 in New York where yeah I'm like 21 years old and I'm supposed to be playing this guy at the bar who's hitting on Joan Jet like uh, yeah they just had they just had me talking to her and I'm not saying anything like just mouth things to her and she just gets disgusted with what I say and leaves because I don't have any lines in it. Oh, can I get any lines? I have to pay you extra. <laughs> yeah, I think they had to. Yeah, they, they would. So if you pay. speak, they have to pay you extra. Is that how it works? Yeah, yeah. that's why, like, um, my friend who works on East Endage, which is the soap opera here, basically they have this market stall in the middle of the set. You guys basically. still got the witches of East End up over there? Oh, uh, I don't know, but but East Enders is, I mean, it's been, oh, East Enders. it's been running for like 40 years here, and it's a nighttime. So I've heard of it, I've never seen an episode, but. But they have the market stores and they don't say anything. What they do is they, but every once in a while they get a line, which means they get a hundred pounds extra. They get to say a line. They get overly excited. He was saying, so I was like, I got a line. Yay. And every once in a while, them it, they'll give them a couple of lines. And then after a while, it's like, sometimes it's like next thing they, they might get a storyline and it has happened with the extras. So it's like, cause they have the same extras every single episode. So bring the same ones. So I'm actually remembering on that same movie, a friend of mine was with me and she's skinny girl, huge boobs. Had her in a low, uh, she was wearing a low cut top that day because she was told, yeah, it's a bar scene. 
So I, I remember they, they positioned her in a way where she was talking to the lead who was, what the fuck's the guy's name from Frankenhooker? The lead guy in Frankenhooker is the, is the lead in this movie. So they, had, they, they positioned her so that she's talking to him and they're shooting over, her, over his shoulder. But they positioned her so that she's leaning on the bar like this. So on the outer side, you just see her cleavage. You don't see her face at all. Oh, no. <laughs> was like, was that was James like, Lawrence? Yes. Yes, that James Lawrence, who's a really, really cool guy. Like I, I sat and talked with him for a little while. He he didn't care that I was just an extra, and he was the leader. I loved Frankenhooker. I thought that was a great movie. Actually, yeah, I thought I, I, out of all that I, stuff. I, I met Frank Henenlotter briefly at a trauma dance a couple of years ago, and tried to get him to come out to a film festival I was working on in Wisconsin. And he went, "Where the hell is Wisconsin?" <laughs> <laughs> he, but he did quite a few films in his day. I like. A lot of basket case. God, uh, brain damage is fucking phenomenal. He's got yeah, basket case. The trilogy are really well done. I mean, as you know, they don't really. Where else for young boys in the eighties going to learn about that? I I've never seen the sequels to Best. I've only seen the first. Yeah, they're not bad. Basket case, two, basket case two is good. They bring a lot of the characters back. They have a bigger budget. Basket case three is very interesting as well because they kind of deal with like freaks. It's like basket case means freaks, so it has that kind of thing going through it. No, the freaks aren't they are not normal looking. Such a know. vile monster. He really is. <laughs> well he kind of finds love and then he comes with a baby, doesn't it? And he meets he meets another he meets another an, an a female version of him. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's, it's sort of, of like Chucky, only they're blobs. <laughs> yeah. So but I mean the basket case trilogy are, are, are really not a bad trilogy, really, considering that the money that they had and and they, and they kept to the spirit of the original. So, well, that's Hennelotter never really got like a great budget for anything. Yeah. He he's a solid filmmaker who just his trademark is just being weird, but not in the not in the not in the clean artistic way like David Lynch. He's on the other side, <laughs> on the other side of weird. <laughs> but I, but the thing is, whatever money he gets, you see it. Yeah, you know, it's a bit like Brian Yunza. Brian Yunza is the same way. You know, he doesn't, you know, with society and, you know, the other films that he made, they were made for a lot of money. But what you what you're on the screen is the money that he has. What I, what I love about him is he he and Stuart Gordon and Dennis Paoli. They were smart. They knew what they wanted to do and they knew how to get their money. They they wrote the screenplay for Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Mm. And sold it to Disney and now anytime they do anything with Honey I Shrunk the Kids they have to pay Brian Usner, Stuart Gordon and and Stuart Paoli and they don't and, and they've spent the rest of their careers just making whatever the fuck they wanted because they knew that Disney money was coming in it was yeah. phenomenal Brian Who did Usner, the incredible shrinking woman who directed that do you remember uh, well the original sixth version I, don't know why I thought that he did both of those movies for some reason wait who did you thought who did who did oh, no, you, no, you're talking yeah. about. Are you talking about the the incredible shrinking really? woman? The well, one with no, Billy I was Cummings. talking about. We were talking about um, the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and then Lily Tomlin's movie. The, you oh yeah, yeah but the Incredible Shrinking Woman came out in 1981, so that was like a long time before, and that was Joel Schumacher. Okay, okay. Yeah, and that and that, that was a vehicle written by. Was Lily that Tomlin. 1981? Oh my. God. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a vehicle written for Lily Tomlin by her girlfriend Jane. Yeah, we. Yeah, write all her comedy stuff. 
God, that we, we paired it with uh, what do we pair it with? Did we pair it with Attack of the Fifty Foot Woman? I think so. I think so. Yeah, uh, that's so. bad. We can't remember. The mind. Well, is the first I mean, thing. you cover so much. Sometimes it's like we're doing four movies a month. Well, five for you guys because you're also doing the book to screen. Yeah. So you know. Yeah, and then that's not including the make remake or the fifth ep- the fifth when we have a five week month that we have to do an extra yeah. episode. And if you look at, well, I mean, we're on this episode is 354. So we've done 354 episodes after this, after I edit this one. Oh, been around for a while, haven't we? You guys were <laughs> seven years. a while before I joined you. So, yeah. So, yeah, we've been here about seven years, going into eight and then in September. So, so still got lots of topics. To and we've been nominated for six years in a row. We may not have won, but we're still getting nominated. So we got always the yeah, bride, like never that. the bride. Wait, 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 wait. Six or five? Six. Five. Six. No, we've been nominated six years because we got nominated the first year on this. On okay, the so this year, year will oh, be. Oh, that's seven. right. You're right. You're if right. we get nominated for a rondo this year, it's our seventh. Yeah. I want that rondo this year. I want the Bo buy a nice dress so I can go and pick up my award. <laughs> well, if we get nominated, anything go, though, the award looks like, but it's fucking scary looking award. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah, I love Rondo Hatton though, so I'm I'm totally down. I, yeah. I, I so I'll keep it on my on my mantle. I don't oh, yeah. I'll oh, make it my damn Facebook profile picture. I don't care. I just want one. <laughs> Let's want it just one year. Mm. So, <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, I you know, to be honest, I don't do, I don't, I don't, I don't do the podcast for awards and stuff like that. And to be honest, I mean, we're doing very well with listenership, surprisingly well. Our sponsor, our subscriber list keeps going up. I don't know where they're listening because said before we're on twenty three international radio stations and like in like Taiwan and places like that. So I don't, but the, the website doesn't really give you that much information. Well, the thing is, is like, I think cause we're on 350 different platforms. So, but I mean, I have to go by the subscriber list by who subscribes to our newsletter by joining onto our website. That's how I know. I mean, I don't know how, you know, which episodes I can go to each, you know, like Podbean and speaker and YouTube and right. And I can go around and see which episodes have done really, really well. Beyond the Valley of Dolls still keeps getting Yeah, listeners. that one did well. And it still keeps getting listeners. So, but, um, and surprisingly enough, Bewitched is starting to grow all of a sudden. I mean, I know that we didn't finish that because Bewitched. That was so bad. Well, they started or, repeating themselves. Yeah. I mean, I love Bewitched and stuff like this, but unless the students will say that it's really hard to do a show that doesn't have, doesn't have a thrill follow line with the storylines you know but that's what episodic tv back in the 60s right. and 50s. i mean if we did like night gallery of twilight you know we're doing the movies today but if we just do those shows you could probably cover all those because they're individual stories like batman where unfortunately with you know those kind of series yeah they kind of fizzle out a little bit so and it's kind of hard to make them fresh and new as you get to like the second or third season. And at one point in Twilight Zone, they started they started like taking on other films that weren't written by Serling. Like they, the uh, best short film of incident or an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, they they bought the rights to that and made it a Twilight Zone episode. So that you yeah. Guys- well, I mean, I think that has a lot to do with the Alfred Hitchcock presents because that's what he used to do: buy short films and then adapt them. Yeah, I mean, buy sh- um, short stories and adapt them for his 
series. Well, well, in this case, Serling bought a, or they bought the completed movie. They bought the completed short film. So there's okay. one, it won best short film at the Academy Awards that year, and they just bought it and made it a Twilight Zone episode. I think Rod Serling at the beginning even even says that he says, you know, uh, you know, usually we don't usually do this, but we just, but this film was so perfect and it fits in so perfectly. Probably gave that movie an audience it never would have had otherwise. Well, another thing is when it comes to short films and whether they win an Oscar or not, hardly anyone ever sees them. Yeah. Yeah, they kind of disappear. Yeah. And I'm actually shocked when I look back. I saw Laurel and Hardy were up for a couple of them. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Looney Tunes, you know, there are different Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies that got, you know, Beth. Yeah. They were nominated for best animated animated short. I think know? the big the big one with Bugs Bunny and the big fat Viking horse, where he's like, you know, the Viking. Kill the rabbit! Kill the rabbit! Kill the rabbit! That's like my all time favorite Looney Tune. Too, there's actually there's actually a DVD, a Warner Brothers DVD of all the Academy Award winning animated shorts, and I found it oddly enough at Dollar Tree. I was like, oh, okay. These are no, all. There's the- a lot in that little bin, the big bin. We got a big bin. I just haven't found anything in there like that. Well, I mean, it, it's hit or I miss. Mean, it's not, some of the Disney shorts, like the Silly Symphonies, they. Yep. Some of those won. All right. I wasn't sure. This is not Probably anything can happen. Was that just North America? Because I heard Canada got hit with it too. I don't know, but I talked to a few people said they got a lot of, lot of people. Apparently, it was a new employee that did something stupid. That's what they're saying. But That's what they're know. saying. <laughs> Whatever. Whatever. He's fired. Yeah. So, but, but other than that, not really doing a lot. And I'm playing Tomb Raider, the remastered one, two, and three. So I'm actually going old school and enjoying that. Though they, the only problem I have with that is that I used to like killing her and watching her die because they, she always had these funny animations when she died, and they <laughs> had to really kind of cut those away a little bit so she doesn't like that. You know, the deal following like her body all crumbles or or she screams. <laughs> so they kind of got rid of those. So I'm kind of missing those, but I'm enjoying it. Going back into. God, I mean, Team Raider was what, 1996? Something like that. That just seems yeah. like so obscene that that was 30 years ago almost. Well, they rounded out her pixelated breasts and now they're rounded. I mean, the remaster looks really nice and, and, and they've done, they done a good job. They haven't remastered the cutscenes though. So the, you got the old cutscenes with the old, you know, the old polygon things. And then, and then you go into the gameplay and of course they rounded everything off and made it look beautiful. But it, it's nice. It, and it also makes me remember that. Old computer games were a lot harder than new ones. They were on trail. <laughs> well, it's kind of like they made a, but it's kind of weird, but like over time, it's like, I don't know if it's because they're catering for the new generation and they don't want to make things too hard for the new generation, but the games are <laughs> a lot easier now. That, just, that sounds really good. I, I mean, oh, you know, like they, 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 no, they didn't have to crash Bandicoot. Um, right. The original game. So it's the same gameplay. It's just like, Beautiful and I think people are done. into nostalgia, but the younger generation are said they, they're having difficulties even trying to, you know, even get to like the next levels because they found them too difficult because games have gotten easier. So it's kind of bizarre, That's really. Like me and Asher play Galaga, I can kick my ass in anything, but pole position <laughs> in Galaga, I reign supreme. That's the only yeah. thing I got to my name. Yeah. <laughs> It's one thing that's always got me is that, is that like all the cheat codes and everything that people do. And I'm like, well, what's the point of the game then? Like, isn't the game, isn't the point of the game supposed to be that it challenges you and you, and you're, 
Oh, I know, like, some some people like the teacups because they got to see Laura Croft in the shower. Yeah. Right. <laughs> they even got off on the pixelated polygon pointed boob <laughs> naked Laura. You know uh, one of the one of the early Metal Gear games, I remember one of my friends found that if you went through like there, there's some character that you capture early on. And if you go through the duct back and forth like five times or ten times or something, when you go back, she's naked. Yeah. Or she's in or she's in like her underwear or something. I just love the incentive that they give young boys to buy their video. Fuck you even figure that out. Uh, well, there's a lot of people with a lot of time on their hands. Clearly. That's not, that's not all they had in their hands. Yeah. <laughs> but for me, that's pretty much what I've been up to this week. So what about uh, you? What have you been up to? Not not a lot. It's been a real bust of a week. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna just try to get through the weekend and start all over Monday. <laughs> Hopefully it'll go my way again. I I did watch. I was telling you about this movie I watched the other night. Left was it Paul Hyatt directed it? It's a 2012 movie called The Seasoning House. It okay. is rough, literally rough. I, I was I just was you know I was feeling good yesterday, so I thought I just sat on the couch watching movies. But that one was that was one of those movies that was it was just hard <laughs> to watch. I'm still watching that Hallmark series, My Way Home, Finding My Way Home, or whatever. I don't, I, I thought, I, I don't usually watch Hallmark, especially like series, but this is the second season. I think I'm I'm waiting for the next one to come out. I'm so addicted because I'm so used to be able to binge something, but you have to wait. My sister's addicted to the Hallmark and Lifetime movies. And Well, and, tell her about this one. You'll never get her out of the house. It's called uh, My Way Home, Finding My Way Home. home. And she'll, and uh, was that uh, Andy McDowell's in it? You know, okay, yeah, from four weddings and a funeral. And- yeah, so it's 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 really good though. I can't stop watching it. It's it's not like. It's but see, I was quite written. shocked because she's watching these movies, and we're, you know, we, when she comes home, we you know we'll we'll spend time and talk, and so I'll kind of watch a little bit of these. And in in the UK, when we got Hallmark and Lifetime movies, they're just the Christmas stuff. Oh, so I'm watching, and I'm like, I'm watching these going, and there's like, you know, I can see like Hallmark on the bottom or Lifetime at the bottom. It's like, it's like all this violence and it's women. <laughs> 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 He's like, what the hell is this? Yeah, a lot of a lot of thrillers on Hallmark and Lifetime now. Yeah. So, well, they're it, actually getting really good. Sam's put out some really good ones. I've watched yeah, a lot Sam of what Sam's done. Well, when you look at who the directors are, they're like Sam Irvin, Fred Olin Ray, David Dakota. They're, they're not. They're who, not chump directors. They're all. They're, they're people who in the '90s were making horror movies and action yeah. movies. Now they're making sappy love stories, but they're doing a good job. But, at, they're, but they're not. Well, well, well none of the they're thrillers. I mean, there one. I mean, one movie I saw. I think. I think Sam Irvin actually directed it because I remember seeing his name on it. And basically, I mean, the movie didn't make a lot of sense to me because I'm not quite sure. I, I mean. I'm not quite sure what the motivation was, but she's on a boat with her mother and her mother. He's cut out again. Boyfriend ends up being alive and they're after something, but I still I had some kind of white slavery ring or something, but, but it took a long time for it. I mean, there's like my action scene, action scene, action scene, and a lot of bad decision-making, but you know, then, they, then you find at the end of like white slavery. It's like, okay, I don't see how this all connected, but it was enjoyable. You can keep your eyes away for a minute. <laughs> I'm, trying to see who do it. it's, I'm trying to see who's, directing the way home but it's i think it's only going to go two seasons but it's about oh. time travel and these girls it, it, it's just i can't explain it it's really complex but your sister probably love it she likes oh. hallmark i'll let her know 
But other than that, we haven't watched too much. We've been kind of trying to get stuff situated for summer. I want to start planting if it's going to stay this warm. I don't dare plant, though. It'll be 86 next week, then 22 the following Monday. So I'm not going to get caught doing that again. But it's just been kind of a boring February week. But other than that, not a whole lot. I know what Joe's been up to. <laughs> What's well, so been, it's been an unseasonably warm February in Chicago. It's been weird. Yeah, it's uh, a lot better than that lake effect snow dumping in all day. As far as what I've been up to, I I, I finished doing the notes for one of the movies on Tuesday, uh, Wednesday morning at 5 a.m. And I didn't have to work anywhere. All I had at that, that day was just remote stuff. So I was like, I'm taking a day to just veg out in front of the TV, do laundry, do stuff that I had to catch up on because like... Up until this past Wednesday, which was the 21st of February, yep, I hadn't had a day off since February 6th. And March Madness is soon approaching. Yeah, that that that's a, that's a lot of money in a short amount of time. That's true. It, it doesn't last. I'm going to be I'm going to be hurting on Monday, but you know, but I'm going to make a lot of money in the in those couple of days, so I'm going to be happy with that. Besides that. Not yeah, you know, not really much because it's been most it's been mostly work lately. Last night after after I finished the Twilight Zone the movie, I tried to I tried to watch The Thin Man and I kind of dozed off and I want to give it another shot today. Never seen it and I've been trying to. But the William aside, Powell film. What's up? Yeah, the William, William Powell, Powell film. Yeah, The Thin Man with William Powell. Yes. Yeah, I love love those films. I got to, uh, I, I'm going to give it another shot. To, uh, I started at 1 a.m., so I don't know what the hell I was thinking I was going to do at 1 a.m. to watch it, but. Myrna Lloyd, to, right? She's the woman. Yeah, right? Myrna Lloyd's the, yeah, the, the love. And the dog. I, I, like I said, I dozed off. Like, I think it was 2 a.m. when I put it on. So I don't know why the hell I thought I was going to get through that movie at 2 a.m. So I'm going to give it a shot today after, after we're off, after we're off on this. I'm trying to find it. You got me intrigued now. I can't remember. Uh, I was, the, reason why I, the reason why I know about the Thin Man, because I am a huge fan of Murder by Death. Oh, the um, yeah, Simon are. movie, you know, that has, they bring all the, all the world famous detectives together with Truman Capote. Uh, uh, and the piss take of the Thin Man is Maggie Smith and David Niven playing Dick and, Dick and Dora Charles. <laughs> <laughs> so what, after I watched that, I watched that, and I watched the, Ch the Charlie Chan movies afterwards because of, you know, murder by death. So. The Charlie Chan movies are a mixed bag. They could either be entertaining or just boring as hell. But yeah, the Thin Man, right there, is I bought the uh, I bought the box set at Barnes and Noble last year. It's like six bucks for like four movies. So I was like, all right, I'll give it a shot because then even if I don't like them, then I'm like, oh, it was nominated for Best Pictures. So it's probably very good. And I'm looking at all these reviews, and everybody just loves it. I'm like, all right, let me give it a shot finally. Yeah. And I put it on 2 a.m. after I, after I worked at a bar and then came home and watched The Twilight Zone. Then I decided, oh yeah, let me let me try to watch uh -huh. The Thin Man. And yeah, no shit, I passed out. <laughs> I'm gonna give it a shot after we're off the air today. I mean, I, I, The Thin Man to me, The Thin Man series, I really love a lot. And the other the other series that came out around the same time is the Topper series. Yeah. Which I, I'm familiar with Topper Returns because really weird. It was on a double feature DVD with a Fred Olin Ray movie called that Joe Estevez was in. And I bought it for that reason. 
I think it was Bikini Drive-In. So it's a weird double feature because you have, you have Bikini Drive-In and Topper Returns. And I'm like, why are those two movies paired? And they, and they there's like three decades between the two. <laughs> That's an odd double feature. <laughs> it really is. It's it's so strange. But, uh, but yeah, I haven't really been up to much besides that. Shanta and I, or Sorceress Celeste and I have been doing a horror movie challenge where every week we watch one movie from this book that I got called uh, Everyone's a Critic. And it gives you like these little prompts. And each week you pick one. Last week was Creepy Kids. So I went with Children of the Corn 5. Because that's the next one in the series that I haven't seen. I'm I haven't seen to... five either. Um, yeah, uh, I, I have got some stamina. Is it bad? Yeah. What did you do with five? You know, I guess I don't know. Like, I, better than the the remake that came on. Um, I've heard it's terrible. I'm going to get to it eventually. Yeah. Um, I didn't yeah, like I've the heard, new. I've heard the new one's awful. It's on Shutter. It's a yeah. Shutter original. I've seen it. I I, I didn't like it. Oh, I didn't hate it, but. You can't beat the first one. I'm sorry. Well, the first one's not great either. Let's be honest. I like that one a whole lot better than I like this one. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it has Linda Hamilton in it, so I mean, that gives it something, and it has a thirty-something guy in it. Yeah, uh, Peter Horton. So, I mean, Peter I mean, Horton. Uh, the imagery of you know Malachi and, yeah. and that horrible little dwarf kid. I mean, so it has that. And I think if it wasn't for those two characters, it'd probably be like a quite of a dud. But it, you kind of watch it now, and it feels like a really bad TV movie. It does. I think that yeah, it is a bad TV movie, but it's still better than the remake. Yeah, no, I didn't I, hate I, it. I didn't mind the miniseries. Like there was that the TV. There was another TV remake that came out in the two thousands that came for was for TV directed TV, but that was it more was for Sci Fi Channel. I, I haven't seen that one yet either. I'm working my it's way. It's not bad. Theory. It deals more. It's more in line with the actual novella, so it's more like that. So there's no happy ending and no happy getting away in it so it's good for that so well the first one's at least interesting because you get linda hamilton right before like she blew up yeah it's the same year as terminator they're both That's 1984 true. so yeah linda hamilton became a huge star i i, I don't know the, the the chronology here which which came first but i think children of the corn came first actually it might have yeah because i don't i mean i remember when i went to <laughs> I'm aging myself now, but when I went to see Children of the Corn at the because I was a huge Stephen King fan, so I went and saw all those '80s Stephen King movies, and they're a they're a mixed bunch to say the least. But I did see Children. 1984. Terminator came out when 84. They both came out in '84. Yeah, but I remember Children of the Corn was a, a the reason I remembered the way they came out because Children of the Corn was a summer movie and Terminator was an autumn movie. Oh, all right. So that's that's why I remember it. You I got better that. memory than me. Well, because I just remember um, I just finished I just finished university when Children of the Corn came out um for the year, and that was May. Well, there, I wonder what's up with his Wi-Fi. He's gotta open the door. My sophomore year at uni, so there he is. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, that remember, is I don't remember people I went to school with, I remember shit like go figure. <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah that that's a that's about it for me so i guess uh we'll get started with our uh with our movies
Night Gallery is a 1969 made-for-television anthology supernatural horror film starring Joan Crawford, Roddy McDowell, and Richard Kiley. <clears throat> Directed by Boris Sagal, Steven Spielberg, and Barry Shear, the film consists of three supernatural tales that served as the pilot for the anthology television series of the same name, written and hosted by Rod Serling. Sterling garnered the Edgar Award for Best TV Episode for this effort. The film originally premiered on NBC on November 8, 1969. Rod Sterling appeared in an art gallery setting as a, uh, art gallery setting as a curator and introduced a trilogy of supernatural tales by unveiling paintings by artist Jaroslav Jerry Ger Gaber. Close enough. Sorry, I'm butchering that name. <laughs> that depicted the stories. The original plot, theme, and background music was composed by William Goldenberg. So uh, we'll cut to the TV spot because I don't think there's a trailer. <laughs> so some TV spot for uh, Night Gallery and be right back. Miss Joan Crawford, Ossie Davis, Richard Kiley, Roddy McDowell, and Barry Sullivan. Starring in the Night Gallery. I'm Rod Serling. I would like to invite you to join me for the telling of three stories represented in this gallery by these paintings to be displayed here for the first time. Each is a collector's item in its own way, not because of any special artistic quality, but because each captures on a canvas, suspends in time and space, a frozen moment in a nightmare. My abiding concern, Doctor, and my singular preoccupation is myself. 11 hours of 12, fewer or more, it makes no difference. I want to see something. Trees, concrete, buildings, grass, airplanes, colors! You look here, old man. Death is final. Death is it. I think not, Mr. Jeremy. I think there are things stronger than death and more lasting than the grave. The portafoy? I think hate is stronger than death, Mr. Jeremy. And I think you're beginning to realize that. <laughs> Join me for the unveiling at the Night Gallery. All right. Welcome back to Literary License Podcast. We are discussing Night Gallery from 1969. And let's start with you, Vicki. What are your thoughts on Night Gallery? I've always loved this, the three episode deal. I I, I can't find, I, I can't even say one story is better than the other. I mean, the, the, just the writing, what went behind the, the script. I don't know if you guys agree, but I think the script was phenomenal. Actually, Roddy McDowell, just, just, just for the paintings, you know, and how that, you know, the brain fuck that went through that whole, I mean, the whole thing's a brain fuck, actually, you know, Joan Crawford you know, thinking she's got her eyesight back and then they have the great New York power outage, right? I mean, how fucked is that? I mean, this seriously, is... the guy who made that up obviously is one of the, like, some kind of sadomasochist. And then Ooh, you got the Nazi. I mean, the Nazi guy that dies and he ends up in the wrong picture instead of the fishing picture and he ends up crucified picture. I mean, it was just all well just dessert. Everybody got it, you know? Was it... Being... Yeah, this but is was one of the... This is one of those uh, anthology movies, one of those rare ones where every single story is entirely a winner. Yeah, yeah every single one. From the you very know, beginning. Yeah. What I find weird, though, is, you know, and we'll cover this, imagine we'll touch on this with Twilight Zone movie, but Boris Sago, who did, who, who did The Cemetery, directed that. Yeah. 
he died really horribly. Did he really? Yeah, he was partially decapitated by walking into a tail rotor blade of a helicopter in Oregon. And the reason how he got decapitated is he turned the wrong way after exiting the helicopter, and he died five hours later. Oh. Oh. So, so, so why? This is like-, like, and of course, you know, when we get to Twilight, you know, we kind yeah. of some similar deaths in the first story there as well. But, but what I like about Night Gallery a lot is the fantastic cast. I mean, Joan Crawford, Ozzy Davis, Roddy McDowell, you know, Barry Atwater. I mean, I uh, have to wonder, was Joan Crawford behaving herself on set? I didn't look that up. I should have. Uh, even Spielberg, had... when he said he worked with Joan Crawford, had nothing but nice things to say about. Well, he was only twenty-one and probably very intimidated by her. Dark well, but, yeah, but the thing is, another thing is that she—he—he's a twenty-year-old actor just starting on his career, and for him, and I said that Joan Crawford was fantastic and wonderful to That's work good with. To hear. And I think that Joan Crawford was going to be a total bitch or or live up to this routine that she has about herself. I really don't. I think that she, she would have acted up on that because she would have been a newbie and she didn't. Right. I mean, Tom Bosley, I mean, fantastic. Oh, God, Tom Bosley. That was just heartbreaking watching his part. It, like, it is a so heartbreaking performance. And another thing is, I am a huge lover of Richard Kiley. And the reason why I'm a huge lover of Richard Kiley, who's in the third story, is that when I was younger, I went and saw him do Man of La Mancha on stage. And Malamalta, basically, he comes in as one character. And what he does, he, you know, he changes his face and he changes his demeanor and he becomes, you know, Don Quixote in this musical. And he was fantastic. And every time I see Robert Kiley, he does a fantastic performance. I think he's very underrated. But I thought he was. He was a great actor back in the day. And I think him and Joe Crawford actually have history, too, which I found was kind of interesting. You know, that they were paired in this movie because yeah. they had history. But I mean, he but he was a very effective doctor, you know. So I, can you imagine? So it's like you are going to get somebody else's eyes and put them in my head so that I can see for eleven hours and fuck the poor guy that needed the nine thousand dollars. You know? Can you imagine? I know when you see when you see the amount of money is only nine thousand, and they're like, and then uh, nine thousand. But the thing is, that's what I quite like about that the the eye situation because you know, what well, we were discussing earlier about not having you know. And not enough pesos for you to feel for the characters, right? And then you find out because when you find out it's only nine thousand, and you're thinking, why would he do that? And then you find out what Tom Bosley's story is, is even more heartbreaking. And it and it and the way he delivers it, it's like, well, you know, you know, I've so really, so pretty much seen everything. There's nothing much more for me to see, and, and you're kind of going. But then he says he's going to shoot himself probably in the head, like after he gets out of city. Well, the doctor's already telling him if you don't, you know, if you don't have money for me that morning, I'm going to give you 15 seconds to say your prayers. So I just looked it up. $9,000 in 1969 is the equivalent of $77,765 today. I wouldn't spend up the nine grand either, though, at this point. <laughs> uh, yeah, not nine grand now is, you know, still nine grand, but this is the equivalent of nearly. Oh, yeah. Nearly $8,000. Isn't that crazy? I mean, it also just shows the difference in like how much the rich have versus the poor because it's like, no, I can afford to spend $80,000 for 11 hours of of sight, which I, you know, when you've been born blind, I'm sure that's, you know, know, 
that's really, really huge to be able to see even for even for just eleven hours. But another thing that makes it make it work is that even Joan Crawford's character is supposed to be this horrible woman. But the thing is, you understand it because right. the behind and she has, you know, and the thing is, you know, she's got all the money, she has all her works of art around her. And then, you know, and, and of course, you know, she, I, and I think the beat and she's successful. She's successful. I mean, she's, you know, you're under the impression that she earned her money. Don't know how she earned her money, but this blind woman who's been blind since birth has developed her empire per se. And of course, you know, I mean, I imagine she has to be a bit hard. I mean, you know, let's face well, it. Doctor. Yeah, well, yeah, I think you kind of, she probably kind of have to because, you know, if you're blind and you're running a, a business, I mean, how do you know if someone's writing you the right amount of money on the check? <laughs> well, I'm assuming you got to, you have to have somebody you pay to, to take care of that. Yeah. But, but I, I found it also heartbreaking because the thing is, it's like it could have been, it could have easily gone down the thing is like she kind of deserved what she got, but you don't feel that. You know, because she has all her works of art around her and then she unravels and she's, you know, she's ready to see everything. And of course, you know, fate, fate steps in and she doesn't see anything and she coasts her death. I do wonder about the, the window in her high rise. I mean, it was a bit thin. <laughs> so, yeah, pretty, well, she cracked it when she throws. Well, she cracked it when she threw stuff too, but. Well, I know high rises today. I know, like, if you live in a high rise, let's say in Chicago, and you throw something at the window, I mean, it's it, it pretty much just bounces off and it kind of wobbles. It doesn't even crack. So I don't know. <laughs> Might have been maybe a just different glass back then, but but you did feel for her, and that's what I quite liked it. And even right, right, I mean, Richard Kiley in the third story, you felt for him, even though he's a you know a Nazi war criminal. You know the kind of thing. Yeah. Is, like, but but the thing is that what makes his character work is that you know that he's kind of remorseful for what happened because his life is his life's not great. He's he's not happy. He's not. You, living, think you thought he was remorseful. I thought. thought well, I think he's. On, I mean, I know he's on the run and so on and so forth. And but he's not happy. He's not leaving a happy life. He's you know. I mean, if to me it to me what it paints to me is that. If I was in that position, let's say I was him, I think I would just right. take myself in because being on the run doesn't look like a lot of fun. I think he no. certainly, I think he certainly understands at least now, at the point that this movie's taking place, that what he did was fucked up and wrong. And I another thing about Nazi war criminals, I think that we have to, which this is gonna—I mean, I'll bring this up again in Twilight Zone because there's a, there's, I found something a bit problematic in one of the stories. But I think it depends on what you are, because you can either be someone in the military making the decisions or you're someone in the military that has to follow orders decisions. So, you know, and I'm not saying that what, what he did was right, but the thing is, you're never quite sure exactly what his role was in the war. Well, the, the, the old man Duke, said he used Duke to stand there with his... The old man said he used to stand there with baton and he would point to who gets to live if they got off the train and who gets to die. So he was pointing at people. You die, you live. Yeah, but but you don't know if he was a general making decisions. You know, was probably you don't well, know if he was like Joseph Menkel, who basically had a lot of power, or was he just an officer that just did what he was told? So well, I doubt he was like Mengele or you know the others, but yeah, I so, don't know. He was well, evil, but he had it coming. Well, my, my, my father grew up in Italy during World War II, and he was he was a child, but basically he remembers that it was like 
I'm, you know, it was, what was it, 16, I think? Military service was compulsory when you were 16. So it'd be like, okay, you're either going to come with us or we're going to kill you on the spot. And if that doesn't, maybe we'll just kill your whole family while we're at it. Yeah. So, a lot, so again, not defending what these people did, but a lot of cases it was, if you don't come with us, your family is going to die. Were they and Nazi they, hunters or were they police? I was kind of confused on the, that. The Jewish guy was, I mean, the thing is. is the little old guy, the two guys that were trying to find him. Well, they, they probably were, they probably were Nazi hunters, probably, because at that time, a lot of the Nazis, Argentina took them in. Or yeah. still took them in. Or and, and rightfully so. So I, did we. I think that the, the Jewish people wanted you know, wanted the law to step in and rightfully so. Right. The question basically, but, you know, but it has that really weird question that if you're drafted into the war and you have to follow orders because you don't have a lot, are you guilty for the atrocities that happened under your, under the command that you have to work under? Well, that's like Nuremberg. They didn't prosecute half as many people as they could have. That was just a fucking shit showing. I think that was just to make people happy, to tell you the truth. Because well, there were so many people they could have tried Nuremberg. Yeah, but, but the, New, the Nuremberg thing was, I mean, the problem with World War II in general is, is that you had a lot of great Nazi scientists. So oh, yeah. was is they, and, and who were really, really horrible. But because of their expertise, and what they could bring to a modernized society that we're going towards. Like the atom bomb. Kind of, they kind of gave them a, a little bit of a pass. And then they kind of went after the people under them because you have to prosecute somebody. So, yeah. So when you look at it, if you look at it from that point of view. Well, there was a lot of sketch stuff going on because you had the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds and everybody had their finger in the freaking Nazi pie. And a lot of people should have been prosecuted that you, you think the Rothschilds, the... No, the, no the, there's... The, had, the had, bank, there, had, did you had, ever read about the global banks and how all that stuff started and what was going on? A lot of American, like, the corporations, they had a lot to do with it. That's another podcast. They had their supporters in, like, the Henry Fords of the world, but I... I, I, you know, well, that, everybody knows that those guys had their, they, they started the world bank. Well, I mean, the thing is, all- I, I mean, but, but then again, I mean, I think when Germany started the regime, they had a lot of supporters. Now the question of whether you were a supporter in the beginning and you continued yeah, is totally exactly. different than being a supporter in the beginning and then changing your view afterwards. I mean, the King of England at that time was a supporter. Yeah. The Royal family. Well, was when, you know, as the war went on and they realized the, the implication of what was really going on. Well, they, yeah. They changed their view. I mean, whether they changed their view on a public platform because it's the right thing to do or they fe- really felt this. Or, I mean, we'll, you'll never really know. But, you know, you know, I mean, you know, the World War II situation is a very, very dire situation. And if you understand the history of what happened between World War One and World War Two in Germany, yeah. you kind of understand you kind of understand the way it was and after world war one because of the taxation and everything because they started the war that the rest of the countries put on them they were well, they took their army away too they could do well they didn't take their them. army away but they also took their money away and they, i mean their cannibalism became very rife in germany at that time yeah. they were poor poor and then of course when you get someone here that's blame everything and they're, they're going to lift you up out of this huge depression 
you know, unfortunately, when you get to that point where you're destitute, sometimes you don't make the greatest decisions, you know, and I'm just in this and this no way condone anything that happened. Well, he was probably following orders, but I got the distinct impression a little old Jewish guy knew him well because he was, let's face it, the Jewish guy thought he was evil anyway. No, he no, he definitely knew who he was. Who it was, yeah. He straight up said, "You look familiar." Like the the first time he says, "You look familiar," he already knew who he was. Well, I don't forget Hungarian. Well, but the thing is, but you also have to remember that if you're in a concentration camp and you're stuck there for a year, two years, years, three or four years, and you got regular employees coming in, you're going to be locked. You're going to see them. You're going to recognize them. And I'm sorry, but as they're doing atrocities, there's going to be a, I mean, they're going to affect you. They're not going to be especially easily. Are they? My folks told me they were little and nobody knew this was going on over here. I mean, we didn't have news like we do now, but it really, I knew one, I actually talked to one veteran many, many years ago at a BFW, my when we were younger and stuff. And he told me that he was one of the first people into Auschwitz or was it Dachau? I can't remember. But he said that they didn't even know what they were going to, they had no idea what they walked in on. They I, no I, think, I think they, I, the thing is they, I think they knew, but they didn't know, they didn't know the extent because to be they, honest, they, this particular soldier, had, they, well, they got yeah, there. They what were I'm saying insane. is but with the power, with the powers that be, if you go back to, and we lost Keith again, that they were taking a section of people and they were ghettoizing them and taking away there. Now, what was going on after that? But at the same time, no one did anything when that was happening. Now, if everyone stepped in at that point, if we had the isolationist thing going well, on back then, well, there was, well, I mean, if you historically, if you even if you you know you read what Charlie Chaplin said after the Great Dictator, after the Great Dictator came out, when the movie itself, those are great too. Movie, when he was making the movie, he knew that they were being he knew that the Jewish people were being put in camps. He knew about he knew that they were harsh conditions in the camps. He he wasn't aware. And he said after the movie, he said, had I been aware that of, of what they were actually doing to all these people, mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't have made light of it at all. Because yeah. he, when, when well, he was making light of Hitler, though, wasn't he? Well, he was you making know? fun of the same time. It's like, but, you know, the thing is, though. I think, I, the important, I think the important lesson is here to learn is that no one got involved until the Nazis started taking, you know, I mean, and no one cared. That's the problem. When this was happening, no one cared precisely. It's only when they started going to country to country and starting to develop, the, you know, to start blitzkrieg and everybody start blitzing yeah. them that, you know, England didn't get involved until basically they started bombing them. And the thing is, but, the, but you have to question the, but you, you know, looking back on it with hindsight, you have to kind of look at it that if you're if people are being ghettoized and taking all their property away, the world probably should have stepped in. Yeah, you know, yeah, maybe so. You know, and the thing is that they step, you know, but the thing is, we have this today. You know, what you know, we in the eighties and the nineties, we had the Serbs and what was happening in Croatia, and because it didn't touch anyone, no one cared. Well, you got the Uyghurs in China; they're selling them off for parts. Nobody cares. You know, yeah. concentration camps. Nobody gives. A- and it, and it, and it's problematic because you know at the end of the day we're you know we should be a human society that basically is fighting for human rights for human rights would think. and maybe and maybe sometimes we're I think as a Western world and you know that sometimes I think that our we try to sit there and say that we're for this and that but we tend to turn a blind eye to a lot of stuff that's going on when it deals with human rights issues. 
And, and sad it, because it's, 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 almost like, it's almost like we haven't learned any lessons. That's if the atrocities of. are being committed by by any country where you know their product is of use, we tend to look the other way. Yeah, and that's yeah. and that's a, a terrible statement on how humanity is. Yeah, we're not a species but, meant to survive. That's for sure. <laughs> well, no, we're speaking. Well, the human, I think, we fuck each other over. Well, no, the human condition basically is is that we're quite good at empathizing about people, but just as long as it doesn't touch us, we don't really want. Uh, I'm assuming what he's saying is we don't really want to do anything about it. You keep me dropping the walls, out. you know, and you know, and then finally something happens, and let's say the the abuse goes too far, but the neighbors are like, well, you know, didn't you know, didn't really affect me, you know. We, you know, we, you know, and that's on a one-to-one level. And we all, and we kind of all do. It. I mean, we watch atrocities on the news. And we're like, oh, that's horrible. But then we go on with our day. You know, yeah, Some stuff though has stay in power for me. Some stuff I see just. Bleh. Yeah, but then, but then we're also on the thing where you know, when it gets to things like this, when it becomes about politics and all everything that's involved. As an individual, you know, paying our tax and doing what we do day to day, we, you know, when it comes to bigger things, we don't have a lot of power, really. You know, the powers, the powers that be have the power, but, you know, as, as we're finding out as time goes on, we, we as individuals are kind of just a number. We're like the prisoner, that old prisoner British series, like, I am not a number. <laughs> That's pretty much what we yeah, are. Yeah, actually, it's, yeah. So, but, I have to sit there and say one of my favorite stories in Night Gallery is the cemetery. Anytime I, I love that, Dow, I'm I, in love. I was I was just gonna say I was like, is it, is it because it's a really good story? Which it is a really good story. Well, it's, it's probably because he likes Roddy McDowell too. Yeah, he's always had a thing for Roddy. He is a fan. I love Roddy McDowell. I'm sorry, he's man. fantastic. Anytime he, you see Roddy McDowell, it takes the stupidest thing and hide and, and lifts it up for me. Like Fright Night, I love him. Fright Night. Planet of the, the Apes, Lassie, <laughs> you know, and he, I mean, he gives a fantastic performance and, and what, you know, the funny thing about it is that he, he can play a hateful character and you still love him. You can play a lovable character and you love him. Name me one hateful character other than Night Gallery. I can't remember him in any other hateful characters other than this one. Oh. He's always nice. No, he, he's done a couple of horror films where he's very bad extra. guy. Hell House. Uh, okay. Oh, House. that's right. Legend of Hell House. He's an asshole in that. I forgot about that one. Okay. Maybe so, you need to um, watch that. I oh, mean, there's two, a dick in that, though. I mean, there's two, there's two actors. No matter what they'll do, I'll say Vincent Price. I mean, I do have a Vincent Price bobblehead that I love. It's <laughs> <laughs> so easy to please. And Roddy McDowell. They're my two, my two go-to. But Ozzy Davis... I mean, Ozzy. I mean, Ozzy Davis would do one of the best cult films that ever came out, and yeah, I think nineteen nineteen uh, hundreds. Bobo Top. You mean Bobo Hotep? Yeah. Ozzy Bobo Davis. Yeah. Uh, it's uh two thousands uh, actually. Two thousand. Yeah. Ozzy Davis. One of one of the one of the greatest African American actors. You know, he's up there with Portier, and he's in this. But you have, uh, but yeah, and that one you have Bruce Campbell and and Ozzy Davis, and they are fantastic in that. Uh, if, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. Is there anybody out there listening to this who hasn't seen Bubba Hotep? You gotta go see it if you haven't. It. It's fun. It's a phenomenal movie. I've heard of it, but what's it about? Is he 
looting me and I can't find it's it. About, <laughs> a mummy comes to an old age home and, and Elvis Presley is, Elvis Presley and a blue guy who thinks he's John Kennedy have to fight the evil. The I night. have not seen it. Yeah, the hotel. I, here's, the, here's the interesting thing. Bruce Campbell is playing old Elvis. He was switched he's out. Bruce from Campbell's in it? Bruce Campbell's Elvis. No uh, shit, I've definitely not seen he it. Thinks he, he thinks he's up. Elvis. I, I, it never is clear if he is Elvis or if he thinks he's Bubba Elvis. Hotep, is that what it's called? Yeah. I'm surprised you've never seen this. I, I've never, I, I've heard of it, but I've never. And Ossie Davis claims to be John F. Kennedy, but after the supposed assassination, he was dyed black and put in, and put in this home. I've definitely not seen it, so I'm going to watch it. I got to find the it. Movie it's just, is it's directed by the same guy who did Phantasm. Yeah. Oh, really? It's, yeah, it's Don Coscarelli. And it's written by uh, Joe Hill? Yeah. It's 2002 a, film, I right? based on a comic book. That's one, yeah. Oh, it's yeah. a Tubi. Snap. Okay. I can do yeah. that. Yeah, it is one of the best cult movies of the last, like... I've never you know, seen it. I love it when you guys tell me about something I haven't seen. I'm surprised you haven't seen this one. I've not seen it. No, it's a not. really famous cult movie. Yeah, check it out. Oh, my God. It's fantastic. Yeah, I've got a, it's on Tubi. I can watch it. And it is wild. Yeah, the, this mummy starts killing off all these people in this old folks' home. And Oh, my God. I can't wait. I can't... It's up to Elvis and John F. Kennedy to stop them. No shit. I can't wait to watch it. This sounds fun. I mean, but, another but... thing in the cemetery I loved is George McCready. Seeing him again. Yeah, a completely silent performance. Really? All, well, all, George McCready was in Gilda. He he was the part of the triangle in Gilda, and I mean he was in Seven Days in May and The Great Race, and I oh, think this shit. is like his, oh yeah, you're right. Okay, and I think this is his last perform. I think this is one of his last performances because he would die like a year later. He died in seventy five. So yeah. Uh, oh wait. Uh, so no, six years later. He I looked him up yesterday. I was like, I, I was surprised to see him in it, and I was like, oh shit. Okay, he died in nineteen seventy five. I don't know if this might have been his last movie or not. But McCready and um, Vincent Price were really good friends because they had a they had an art gallery together. Oh shit! And, and Vincent Price shows up twice in the TV series in two two excellent episodes. Yeah, uh, oh, one based yeah. on H.P. Lovecraft, where he plays like this this weird Satanist, and it's really entertaining. The story's not, and the second one, the the other the other one he appears in is actually a really phenomenal episode where he plays a a teacher. Yeah, and who is te teaching the kids basically to hate the enemy? And the enemy would be black people, Asian people, Jewish people, and it's called Class of '99, and it's one of my favorite episodes of the series. Excellent. Um, I was watching Witchfinder General the other day. Go for just grants because there's that's my favorite Vincent Price performance because it's that's yeah, the only I just one. Love, like, but, you know, but back in the day we. Were when me and my mother were watching Hammer films, I mean, I had no idea how cut they were as a child. And then to watch them in their full regalia, I mean, I had no idea that shit was... I, I was, like, shocked. <laughs> well, this I wasn't a Hammer to... film. This was AIP. Yeah. Uh, this is, Amer just, this is American International. It wasn't Hammer. Michael Reeve. I just didn't realize the nudity back then because you, we had regular. Oh, in, in, but English, English films had nudity in them. They were, I mean, they. England, but they never showed England it on my very, But the thing about England, the difference between England and America is that America doesn't have a problem with violence where England does. America has a problem with nudity where England doesn't. So it's kind of this weird kind of thing. 
which I, I always say that was also we had that see- backwards. Mm-hmm. What? I always felt that we had that backwards here. No, like why, we have, no, not we very have, good we have no problem with violence, or, but a problem with nudity. It, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't have a problem with nudity. Have you not seen the new Spartacus series and all the men in that? Oh my God. Well, I, I mean, know there wasn't a Spartacus series. I think, I think we kind of move forward now with, with that kind of idea. But in the 60s and 70s, it was kind of a big well, thing. Well, the 60s and the 70s, nudity was new for rated X when they came out here because of the nudity in it. Yeah, but see, I didn't. I wasn't aware of that when I was a young girl watching. I didn't know that was cut, is what I'm saying. When I was a young kid, yeah, all the cavorting, the cavorting in the inn, and all that stuff was. uh, Well, the the there's two different versions because there's the the U.S. version was called the Conqueror Worm, yeah, uh, because it was a British American co-production, and the British studio kept the title The Witchfinder General, which is a better title for it. In the United States, it was retitled The Conqueror Worm. Some of the nudity was cut out. <clears throat> it had a different score. And they added a narration of Vincent Price reading the Edgar Allan Poe poem, The Conqueror Worm, to the beginning and the end of the film. Because they wanted to tie it in with the Vincent Price, Edgar Allan Poe movies that were coming out around the time. Right. Yeah, Michael Reeves, the director, he's like 25 years old. He died shortly after this of a drug overdose. Hated yeah. Vincent Price. Didn't want him in it because he felt Vincent Price was a terrible actor, and he—he's just well, a Vincent star. Price was a was type. He would have a typecast performance and a lot of stuff. Not in this though. Reeves yeah. brought something out of him here that was completely different. And Vincent Price, uh, well, he wanted Donald Pleasance, and the studio was like, "Well, Donald Pleasance is great as a supporting character, but he's not going to be our lead. We want a star." And because they had the link with AIP, AIP had Vincent Price, so they brought Vincent Price in on it. And that's it was your basic more for that demanding movie. for the role, though. I mean, Donald Pleasance just—I guess he, he just didn't want to have that command of that. Donald Pleasance. Well, Donald, Donald Pleasance, you got to remember that at this time, Roman Polanski's Compulsion. If you watch that, you'll see a great performance. I mean, I've got so no, I love all of his performances, but like Witchfinder General and stuff like that. I just think that that Vincent Price would have been a better fit because he was more tall and commanding and more sinister. I know that Donald Pleasance could get made to look sinister too, but I just think he's a better pick. There is a, there is a play that's going on in London at the moment that deals with, and it's four people and it basically deals with Tippi Hendred and Alfred Hitchcock making the birds and, and him getting in a performance out of her. Right. And at the same time, it has Mike, Mike Reed and Vincent Price. And what they do is they share the same stage, and they kind of mirror each other how how well, how they're working and how they get the best performance out of these two people. Huh? I mean, what? Ah, uh, fuck! If, if that ever comes to the United States, the Hampstead Theater in London at the moment. What's uh, it called? Hold on, I'll find that out for you. But it's playing at the Hampstead Theater in London, and it's Wait. called. Uh, it's excellent. I saw I saw it just before I before I left. I had the playbill around here. If you think I remember the name, and it's called Drumroll, please. Sorry, computers take time loading up the screen. So here we go. But while he's talking about, oh, that, it's called Double Feature. Double Feature. Okay, so if that ever yeah. comes out here, or if it's ever filmed, I'll watch it. Because mm. <laughs> yeah, the, the but, story- but, it's really, but it's really really well done, and they and they share the same set, so it's kind of all it's all done like on a 
a living room set situation and they're going they go back and forth between the two sounds rather intriguing In, infamously infamously michael reeves was giving vincent price shit over something i don't remember what it was and vincent price told him told him i've been i've been in you know 90 97 movies how many movies have you directed and he said two good ones yeah wow he died of a drug overdose you say yeah, yeah he died of a drug overdose shortly after this movie was made but I will. But we will say about Vincent Price that after this, after doing The Witcher, that his memory of on that film, he said that he adored him and he highly respected him because he got him to a level that he didn't know he could hit. Yeah. So yeah, that's so, uh. So I, I to that Vincent Price to be able to recognize that as well, because a lot of actors wouldn't. So. Well, you don't have to like everybody you work with. You just got to be civil, you know, <laughs> get your job done. Yeah, so, I, I mean, if what comes out is quality, then, you know, the director did his job. Was Vincent Price in any of the night galleries? Yeah. Yeah. So we, just, we just discussed that. He was in well, I'm trying to remember which episodes. Return of the Sorcerer in Class of 99. Yeah. It was the Class of 99. Okay. Now, uh, another thing, thing we have to say about the cemetery is Barry Atwater. Because Barry Atwater, I mean, would end up doing one of the most famous Twilight Zone episodes, The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. And he's in this. So I was like, so there's a lot of nice, nice, nice little Twilight Zone nods here. Because How many seasons all- did we get out of Night Gallery? Three. Three. One half a season because I think it was the mid-season replacement and then two full ones. Well, Rod Serling wasn't happy with the whole situation at all. Well, like, hate- I think. I think the problem with Night Gallery is that they try to fill a hour format. So what you got, and you got was, and they try to sometimes put when when it stuck to two two stories within this hour format, it kind right. of worked. When you got Great. three stories kind of shoved in here, and sometimes you get like weird. Well, they top- wouldn't give him the artistic license he wanted, though. I mean, they kind of were getting the hard time, so we walked away from it. And then it wasn't until somebody else picked up the gauntlet that. He got to do what he wanted to do. Well, Night Gallery kind of reminds me of the last season of Twilight Zone when Twilight Zone went from a half hour show to an hour show. And the same right. thing with Al and Alfred Hitchcock presents also has this problem where when it's a half hour show, it's very tight, very well done. And right. then when extended it to an hour show, it kind of lost something in the translation somewhere along the way. And I think Night Gallery, I think if it was a half hour show. I think it would have been tighter. Where Night Gallery really shines is with the Richard Matheson episodes right. that he wrote. Yeah, and then then the other and then the ones that are written by other people are kind of peppered in there. And the, you got some great ones done by other people. Don't get me wrong, but the Matheson ones, like the Twilight Zone Matheson episodes, are the ones that highlight it. And I think it's, that's what people always remember those episodes. But there's some really take a beat great- in Spielberg though. <laughs> as Grayson Grace Hall from Dark Shadows is in a couple Night Gallery episodes. Yeah, that I do know. She, yeah. I, I love when she shows up and stuff. I really, I enjoyed the hell out of her acting. I wish she did. I wish there was more of her out there. I wish she would have lived long. I mean, what I loved about the Night Gallery also is is that you got to see these fantastic actors appear out of nowhere. Well, that was what was good about it, though. I mean, there was yeah. always that special, you know viewing of their favorite whoever showing up every week and, it, and to be honest if it wasn't for night gallery you probably wouldn't have fantasy island you think you think that was a precursor oh, it's, 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 it's a spirit it's a spiritual cousin to night gallery you know you got people who show up and 
you know, you have a little bit of comedy, a lot of drama and some thriller and some horror all kind of going on with what, depending on who got, whether it was a nephew and a cello popping up on the island or Fabian or whatever. You can tell whoever made the paintings for these three episodes definitely did for all three episodes because it's the same style of painting for each other. It, it I, would, say, yeah. I would love to have a painting from Night Gallery. Apparently, I want they, the cemetery one. I would kill for that. Apparently, one. they were all destroyed. After Are you show. serious? I thought Joan Crawford kept one of her. I don't. Well, I don't know. I don't know if she kept one, but apparently, after the show went, because I did do some. Why research. does everybody destroy stuff? Well, I mean, the thing is, you don't really. I mean. This is before reruns. This is before DVD. This is before yeah, I know TV shows. In, up until up until about seventy six, seventy seven, didn't really. No one really counted on reruns. But it's only with people, it's only people cable that reruns a thing. What? People wanted things. I mean, they there was but they, did, but they didn't. What happened was TV shows would air, whether it was. Andy Griffith show or leave it to be here. Twilight zone. All these shows. It's only when cable came in and reruns became a thing that people started re-remembering right. those. And then of course with DVD later on, I mean, Brady Bunch, right. if you look at the Brady Bunch, for instance, Brady Bunch wasn't a huge hit. It's only through reruns that it became the true Gilligan's Puffin Island, all that stuff. Yeah. Puffin stuff is another one. Puffin stuff ran for 13 episodes with, you know, when it first aired, it did, did well. It's only after they reran it in the 72, 73, 74, 75. Right, that. The there's a whole, there's that it a became whole a well-loved series. There's a whole app on Roku for Sid and Barney Croft stuff. Yeah. But if you look at but if you look at Sid and Croft shows, you're lucky if you got 13 episodes out of any of them, whether it's Sigmund the Sea Monster or Hatton or Hatesville or Electro Woman and Dino Girl or whatever. Or even the Banana Splits only had 13 episodes. True. So you know, but it's only through reruns that people went back. And of course, that was, you know, it's the reruns that turn these shows into these fantastic meganauts of things that help shape us in our childhood. Right. You're right. I keep forgetting things were different. Well, yeah, well, I remember like when I was growing up, I mean, I came on the Twilight Zone and I came on to Night Gallery through WGN on cable. In the afternoon, they would repeat these on the cable. And that's how I loved them. I mean, you know, I, I saw I married Joan and, you know, leave it to Beaver in outer limits through this way. If it wasn't for WGN and these cable stations at that time, uh, during the day, playing all this old stuff because they needed content, these shows would have been lost a long time ago. I mean, when you when you consider like, like, like Vicky said, I don't understand why they just destroyed it. I mean, they, they didn't see any value in it once it was out there once, yeah. like even movies, even older movies. When the, the infamous fire happened at Fox Studios in 1937, they were, you know, the night watchman was asked if anything of value was destroyed. He said, nah, just a bunch of old movies. Yeah. And now we, be, that fire is the fire that, that, that probably cost us the early Charlie Chan movies, all the Theta mm -hmm. Barras movies. Well, somebody has copies. Didn't they say they were somewhere? There's like... Well the, the thing the thing is about old movies what's what tends to happen now is if they find them they tend to be because what they would do is they would send like the original film to like australia or new zealand and because they new zealand, uh, new zealand would never send them back they would end up finding a lot of these old films there for some reason yeah yeah because it, uh, it cost more to ship them back than they were worth is the way the studios put them yeah and so you have to so you, basically you have to rely on a movie lover projectionist who was showing the movies that might have kept a copy. 
Yeah. Yeah. It, it wouldn't be the theater that would own it. It'd be some projectionist who had a love for it and would take it home. Yeah. That's, and then when they die, you would hope that the family would, f- would figure out maybe there's some money in this or there's some worth in this. But if they didn't have any affirmation for the movie, they might they probably just threw it away. Is there any die? record that these movies ever existed? Titles, for, for instance, things like that. Things The missing, supposedly destroyed movies. Is there any record of their title? Or yeah, or- there's a lot of records. Yeah, there's okay. a lot of records. I mean, because the thing is, when you go to this, this you know, MGM Universal or those the big ones. I mean, I don't know about independent ones. My the right. my, sketchy, but they have a log, and they you know if you go talk about a movie, they'll be able to pull out stills and stuff. There's there's always stills okay. of these I things that are not available, so they must have a a file. Uh, they must have no a no negatives. They didn't keep anything. They burned. No, as far as the film itself, they didn't keep it. They didn't see any value in it. Think, but you got to remember that this is. I mean, that pre television. It was very rare that they would reshow movies because the thing is, if you look at an output of any of these main studios, they were making movies like back to back to back to back to back because they had to have a different movie coming out every one to two weeks to keep the theaters going. Yeah. And, and that's also including the shorts and all the other stuff. So, you know, if you didn't go to the movie theaters and saw The Thin Man, for instance, when it came out, mm-hmm. that was it. That was your chance. That time, that week, that's it. And well, it was kind of like that back when we were kids too, though. I mean, because didn't ever once it came. I, well, I guess they did come on. TV. Well, well, the thing is, the thing is that we had television by the time we came along. Yeah, that's true. What would happen if it was because TV? You know, when it became more of a well, when it started coming from like six in the morning until two in the morning, then what happened is is that. On the weekends, soap operas pretty much filled, soap operas and game shows filled up the afternoons on Monday. Oh, God, like a big dog, yeah. But they needed content for the afternoons if they didn't have sports or something like that. So what they would do is that's when the old movies would start popping back up again is during those time, there's time slots on the weekends. And that's, of course, that's how we became more and more attuned to these old movies. And, of course, with with the invent of cable, where you have all these cable stations because they want to get on the board of these, you know, of the cable Meganaut. And, you know, now you can have, you know, WGN from Chicago or the station from New York, and they can beam their stuff cable throughout the country, but they needed content because they didn't really make their own original programming. So they would rehash old shows and old movies, which is, you know, and HBO kind of did that in the beginning days as well, because all they had was new movies. So they had the filter catalogs up with older movies to help blanket the 24 hours that they're covering. Yeah, that's when you'd uh, that, that, and, I mean, when you, when you think of the way movies were made back in the you know 30s, 40s, and you know, early 50s, they, they a lot of times they didn't have a recurring story for their sequels. They would how many times did the, the Three Stooges repeat the same, or, or even reuse footage? The Three Stooges infamously reused footage. Abbott and Costello did the same bits over and over. The Bowery Boys did the same bits over and over because they didn't they they didn't expect that you were going to actually see every movie, or right. if you or it's so spaced out that by the time it got to your town, you might have forgotten that they just did that same bit three movies ago. Well, I mean, another thing is if if you want to see power of television and rerunning old movies, CBS Planet of the Apes series. 
the movies, I mean, they came out, they did well, never to be seen again. And then CBS decides to show these on a Saturday night slot. So they showed each one, one after another, every Saturday. I remember that. Another, the Ace movie, which took Planet of the Apes and lifted this up to this high expectations. So then what happens was the theater started doing Go Ape. So basically they would show one after another for kids. And that's what, you know, and, that, that, and of course we'll lead to TV show and the animated series. And, and, and that's the reason why we had the new try to plan the ace movies is because all of our loves for these movies, when we saw those, when we were kids, they're quite good too. I can't wait. For I the mean, next and also they took C, uh, CBS would take two episodes of the planet of the apes series and mush them together and make five more TV movies. <laughs> and, got, and got Roddy McDowell coming back to give little voiceovers between the two to bring them together. Yeah. So <clears throat> not to mention, like, you had uh, independent distributors. There's a great fucking horror movie called Tombs of the Blind Dead that some distributor in, like, Massachusetts, like, cut the movie up, cut out the nudity, put in a narration over the beginning and retitled the movie Return to Planet Ape. Wow. <laughs> That's how big Planet of the Apes got. But man, we I keep mean, digressing off of this fantastic, great anthology movie. Well, I mean, it kind of ties into why Night Gallery is so loved to be loved to now. It's basically it's the rerun series that we all turned. That's what we turned into. My first, my first love of the, this movie was Vicky Remembers. We had Monster Movie Matinee that showed a monster movie. There was another one, too. I can't remember. I was a kid. And then there was one on channel five coming out of syracuse called evom that's it yeah evom was movie spelled backwards but hey when you're a kid you don't realize that yeah. <laughs> they showed night gallery and that's the first time i saw night gallery and from that point forward i was a huge lover i whenever after the movie and i my love for night gallery came from this pilot Episode. Yeah, the I mean, I'm not I'm not going to say that the the series was bad, but the pilot just is so perfect. Every story is perfect, and the first time I saw it was actually on the Sci Fi Channel. They showed the pilot movie, and they were showing Night Gallery during the day when I was at school. So it was one of those one of those shows that I would tape. I would set my VCR to tape a bunch of stuff, and Night Gallery was one of the shows that I would tape. And I remember coming home being excited about it. Especially once I saw Vincent Price pop up, and well, another thing I say about Night Gallery, the the pilot, which they you know came out as the, you know they show in the movie afternoons. This is one of the there's two greatest TV anthologies: this and Trilogy of Terror. Yeah, when you're looking at TV anthology movies, these are this is the best one, and Trilogy of, Trilogy of Terror lives are basically side by side. Nothing's be nothing's better than Carol Karen Black being you know run around in her apartment with a voodoo doll. No, the the Zooty fetish doll. That's <laughs> that scared the doll. shit out of me when I was a kid. I'll never forget that. The running. Yeah, that, that was the, like a little like the little pitter pet. That just freaked me the fuck out when I was a kid. Scared the shit out of me. And then they 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 redid it again in Trilogy of Terror too. They just remade that story again yeah it wasn't as good though yeah and actually I think wasn't... You need karen black and her black eyeliner to make it work karen black was was making the the circuit that back then too she was in all kinds of i love <laughs> <Black>. <laughs> no budget horror films 
Karen Black, you know, she disappears and shows up in House of a Thousand Corpses. So I was like, yeah, (laughs) yeah, no shit. That was weird. Well, she was doing a lot of a lot of like cheap direct to video movies. Like she was in one of the what's up? Invader of Mars in the eighties. Invaders from Mars. Well, that wasn't direct to video. That was that was theatrical. But I, oh, did it? But she okay. was in a lot of like it, like in the nineties. She disappeared into like a lot of direct to video action and horror movies. Right. Like I just saw her the other day in uh, one of the Children of the Corn sequels. Yeah, they probably did. So she was doing stuff like that. Um, there, there was actually. Let me find it because I'll, I'll the the last story reminded me and i had to i had to i have to look this back up because i have to look up what i wrote about it back when i saw it because it's been a couple years but there's a story in a another anthology film called three cases of murder that stars orson wells and he supposedly directed one of the one of the stories but i cannot find anything but it was about a person who disappears into a painting at an art gallery so i'm wondering and this is way too late now. Rod Serling's been dead for nearly 50 years. And Rod Serling died like right after the series was over. But yeah, I God, I'm I'm looking it up and I didn't write anything specific about the story. I, I know oh. I've I've seen another something similar with a painting as well. And I it, that's a club thing in my mind. But I'm oh, wondering if knows. I'm wondering if Orson, if Rod, I mean Rod Serling was was inspired by Orson Welles. The film is called Three Cases of Murder. When I watched it, it was on YouTube, so I don't know if it's still there. I wrote on my post that I was watching it on YouTube, but look it up. And it, th- that story in particular is very, very Three good. Cases of murder. Three cases of murder. Three cases. Yeah, it's British anthology film with Orson Welles, and uh, Orson Welles supposedly might have uh, might have taken over and kind of forced the director out on the third other than what he was working on and basically just like no you don't know you don't know what you're doing you stupid little fool i'm gonna take over but i remember that being very good as far as like the stories here i love the stylized sequences after after joan crawford gets her eyesight and she's right. looking up at the chandelier and everything goes black i love the stylized sequences of just you're saying everything. that was the best directed one and on the research i got there's well knowing what knowing what we know now i mean the, you know it's steven spielberg and he became one of the says biggest eyes directors was by fa- says eyes was by far in a way the best written and performed but but they were all quite good the twists of all three tales were quite satisfactory and the tone was nice and macabre and the cast is terrific there is i mean the, the I like, only I like I, the fact that two of the twice uh, night gallery episodes are directed by two people who go on to direct they directed on two Elvis Presley movies, Girl Happy and yeah. Easy Come Easy Go. <laughs> Tom Bosley, though, I forgot he was in this. I haven't seen this in some time. I, for- I totally he forgot so about him. so sad in this. It is so, he, he gives it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. I feel and sorry. There's a, there's a part of me that wonders, you know, because he, he talks about how he'd probably just put a bullet in his own head. Yeah. Part, part part of me wonders, you know, you take that you take that nine grand, which you know, I, when I looked it up, seventy seven thousand dollars in today's money. You know what, bro? If you're gonna feel like you don't want to live anymore after after giving up your eyes anyway, go out and have a fucking blast with that money as much as you can. You know, uh, having just lost your eyesight, and just let the guy kill you. Yeah. The the only one the only twist that I kind of feel i mean i guess when when you make it about greed 
was was Portafoy. Portafoy getting killed. Portafoy was greedy. Well, Portafoy was yeah. greedy too. Yeah, that's that, and that's the reason you have to you have to establish that that, that he was greedy, and because when really he doing- thinks so at the, at the first <laughs> glance, but you know who's changing? He's going to get fifteen paintings, five dollars on But you you get the feeling at the beginning that he's doing it because he actually loved George McCready. That's what I thought at the beginning, and he's doing it to get back at this asshole nephew, who you know, for all intents and purposes, killed his uncle. Put him in front of the uh, put him in front of the open window, and you know, after the doctor told him a draft could kill him, and just left him there for two yeah. hours. So th- there's part of me was it's a double comeuppance because Roddy McDowell gets his comeuppance, and then because Ossie Davis didn't didn't get his revenge from a place of love or anything. I mean, I wonder even just in general, the committee he respected you know, the old man. Yeah, well, I think. I th- I think he respected the old man, but uh, I mean, it, it, it's, we're kind of dealing with a black servant for an old rich man old situation, rich. and we're looking at the seventies. Well, we're looking at the seventies kind of thing. So, and I'm also kind of wondering if, and Rod Serling was very, very much of putting in also social commentary into his works, and he wrote this. So, I think there's also that kind of. There is a there is a slight social commentary that he kind of inputs here, but I don't know if he actually wins it out successfully because you kind of see it, Roddy McDowell kind of makes him as like, you know, makes some nods, some kind of almost racist kind of nods to him. Like, yeah, he does. Yeah, like I did. And then, and I under and I think what I, and I kind of think because he needed that ending with Roddy McDowell's corpse or whatever's coming to the door. You're never quite sure what's coming to the door. So it could have been the, could have been the artist guy. Well, who knows? That's what I was saying. But, it could be the artist guy coming back. But, but I kind of wonder, so it kind of got lost a little bit, but I'm, I'm wondering that maybe it got lost. Maybe, maybe it was a bit supposed to be longer or something because, but they, but he, there is a nod to this, you know, that, you know, he's, you know, he's been the servant to him since he was a boy situation. So, and and they're living in a southern mansion. So there is, there is I don't know, there, but they, there is a nod to that here for whatever reason. I think he um, left him what was eighty dollars a week until uh, until he dies. Let me see what that would be today. Because yeah. this story, but, from but, what he I li- but he lived, but he had to also remember that he lived in the house and was eating at the house and stuff like that as well. So because because he said because he goes, I'm I'm moving out, I'm moving into town. So he was living with the old man. So well, he went and got a hotel because he said he didn't want to stay in the house anymore. But what I'm saying is that he was a ser- he was a, a servant or who was getting paid eighty, but at the same time he didn't have rent or bills coming out of that eighty. No. So and looking at it now, it's about six hundred ninety one dollars a week, <laughs> which not, not too bad. Not, not too, too bad. Not, not, a, not not fantastic, but yeah, if you're 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 guaranteed to be drawing nearly seven hundred dollars a week on top of whatever else you do. He can go get another job, yeah, and make make more money and basically yeah. Like, but then he would have to pay rent, food, bills. That's true. Yeah, wasn't as long as he as long as he stayed there. Was that the stipulation? Well, I, think- I well he he was a, he was a, he was a live in. We know that. So so I, I don't think there was any stipulation to the will though. I think he was just going to get eighty dollars a week for the rest of his life, no matter. Oh, what. after he left. Okay, gotcha. Oh, sorry, I thought you were talking about how much he got. How paid much was he going to get? 
$80 a week, which is $691 a week in today's money. Which, is that all you, he was going to get? I would have Well, that. yeah. And if you think of the thing that this, you know, this Ozzy Davis's character devoted his life to the well being of this man and made sure that this man's life was easy because of his job. It's not a lot, really, I guess. Is no, that, not, it, I mean, there, there is a little bit of a fuck you situation to it, really. Right. So, so when you look, I guess when you look at it deeper, uh, I guess that the, the old man's not as great as you think he is. Maybe not. But well, I mean, it's also, that's just, that's just a base for the rest of your life. So I guess that would mean also like whatever you decided to do, if he, if he decided to go do something else, he could, he could make some extra money. But yeah, it doesn't seem like a lot for someone who basically devoted his life to you. I mean, yeah. 700 bucks a week is, is not bad. Well, maybe the old man wasn't that great either, you know? Yeah. I am. But the thing is, but then there's the Roddy McDowell story. And it's like, he is the nephew of a, and his mother apparently doesn't, didn't have a good relationship with his. She didn't have any money, never helped. They struggled. They thought. Yeah, but he, but she didn't have a good, it's like he came out of nowhere. It's like, he didn't know who it's like, it's almost like he didn't know that he existed until he showed up. So there's that, uh, as well, yeah. which is kind of a strange kind of a story that they which, kind of throw in there. Which, yeah, if you're, if you're this rich guy, wouldn't you at least keep tabs on your sister and like, yeah. be like, if he hey, cared about his sister, maybe. I think he'd still keep tabs just to know what was going on. Yeah. I want to circle back a little bit of Tom Bosley. Before Tom Bosley died, he played Maurice in um, Beauty and the Beast on stage because right. of fantastic performance. He was nominated for Tony. But the last performance he did was he played Fritz Showman in Cabaret. Really? I didn't know he did the, that. The, the, show, the stage show of Cabaret is totally different from the movie. Bob Fosse kind of changed it because the, he wanted to make the musicals a more of a dynamic thing and so anytime there's music in cabaret in the movie it only takes play when she's on stage so therefore so therefore the so there's no music kit you know musicals normally take your song and they carry your story arc around your character story arc so that's why they burst out in song during dramatic times in the stage show there is a scene where rich showman and the landlady who's jewish have this relationship and they get torn apart as the Nazi, as the Nazism starts to rise, and it's this heartbreaking sequence for this character. And it's and Tom Bosley, if you if you go on YouTube and you look up his performance in Cabaret, he gives that same kind of heartbreaking performance that you saw in Night Gallery, which is quite nice. That he kind of he kind of circled back to this heartbreaking performance to show you. Tom Bosley, I think, because of Happy Days, you kind of forget that he was actually a really good actor. Yeah, he he also has that kind of hangdog face that really works for this performance. Yeah, it does because you feel because he looks kind of droopy and he's just kind of well, I guess. And sad. Yeah, like, I'm just gonna have to accept my fate, I guess. And and he 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 he, 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 he kind of refrain re, repeats that performance in Cabaret, which is really heartbreaking. So on YouTube, give it a shot. Look up Cabaret Tom Bosley, and you'll see that you'll see his scenes, and it's just as heartbreaking so which i'm, I'm kind of glad that he went out you know i mean i know a little bit well he kind of went out with knowing that's like he was more than you know richie cunningham's dad yeah yeah 
So well, I mean, I've seen him in other stuff, and he was more than Richie Cunningham, Dad. Yeah, but I think people you tend to forget, don't you? you yeah, pigeonholed. Yeah. Well, yeah, his most well, yeah, like when you pick up Night Gallery, and the first thing you think, oh, it's Richie Cunningham's dad, and then you yeah. see his performance, and it's like, and it, it makes you it makes you yearn to see him do more. It'd be nice if he did more of those roles as well. Situations, so. Also, gr- growing up, growing up Catholic in in, in New York, Father Dowling's Mysteries. I love that with Margaret Wicks. Yeah, he was. I think he was Father Dowling, was he not? Yeah, Father Dowling and Margaret Wicks was the housekeeper. Oh, that's right. Boy, that's a blast from the past. I haven't thought. Well, that, that, it has that anorexic girl from um, Down and Out in Beverly Hills. The anorexic is the nun. Oh, what's but yeah, name? I remember watching that as a kid, and that oh, was God, uh, that's gonna bug me now. What is your name? Down and Out Beverly. Yeah, Father Dowling Mysteries would be easier. Just look that up. But she was Tracy Nelson. Okay. Which she, um, Tracy Nelson. I love that movie. Is that where they, they steal Bette Midler? Right? Yeah. No, that's where on the rich and they take in Nick Nolte as the homeless person. Oh, oh, that's right. Okay, here it is. Oh my God, Richard Dreyfus is in it. Mm-hmm. Probably like an episode or two. Oh, I you're, just got to remember. What was that movie? What about Bob? Oh, that's the most frustrating movie for Richard Dreyfus. I started that movie. It's hysterical. I was on today. First time I saw that was on a plane. And, and like the Bob. Bob. Father Dowling Mysteries only ran for two seasons. But I guess what we should do is let's rate Night Gallery. I guess starting with you, Vicky. Oh, absolute five. I can't find anything wrong with it. I just it's just great stories. Keith? A solid five. And this is the first time you get to see Rod Serling in color, which is exciting. That's true. Why didn't you no, that's right? I forgot about that. And yeah, for me it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be a solid five, also. There's not a bad story in this bunch. Everyone of the- about Rod Serling, he looked better in black and white. I'll just play that out. <laughs> well, he looked a lot. There is something to it for black and white. There is. I think. I think. He, I think it's because he has a '70s haircut. He let. He kind of let it grow out a little bit to like. So he's a hip. You know, he's hip in the '70s. So, well, I can. Um, I I could say this for if anybody else wants to see Rod Serling in color outside of Night Gallery. He did make one last movie, his last movie, which uh, is another anthology film, but he didn't write it. He didn't have anything to do with it creatively. They just hired him as a narrator. Is a 70s anthology film called Encounter with the Unknown. I haven't seen it in a long time. I remember it not being good. And when I looked up the reviews for it, that seems to that seems to be the, the case. But I remember renting it on VHS when I was a kid and going, oh, Rod Serling's in this from The Twilight Zone. And aside from narrating it, the stories have none of his none, none of his moral messaging. It doesn't. It just doesn't work. They just simply do not work. The filmmakers were not, were, as far as I remember, not very good filmmakers. So, if you're interested that, in it, um, it's on YouTube. Well, certainly was had cancer when he's doing that, so that might yeah, have he, as well. Yeah, he he was. I think he just needed money because he was. He, I I don't know. Did he need money or was it just? But yeah, he was not. I know he, he was a heavy smoker. He was a heavy smoker too. Yeah, something he, he smoked something like forty to sixty cigarettes a day. No way. How would you have any time? Who would you be? I'd be sick to my stomach. Who 
He probably got them free because I think Chesterton probably, I think that they actually would advertise for Twilight Zone because there, there are Chesterton Twilight Zone advertisements that you can find at Rod Serling's own. Yeah, well, there you go. Yes, they, or they, Lucky yeah, Strikes they, are one of those. The same, I think it's the same probably ones. Probably Camels or Lucky Strikes, I would, I would venture. Well, it's the same, it's the same ones because Twilight Zone is a Desi Lu production. So, and the same ones they were doing I Love Lucy. So. I didn't know they were Desi Lou. I've yeah. never, I never, I don't remember paying attention to the credits back. Yeah, they came, they came oh, under Desi Lou, which MGM, it. which Universal took over Desi Lou, didn't they? So I didn't care who made what back then. Mm. I mean, when you were a kid, you really didn't pay attention to who made what. No. Yeah, I guess that brings us to our uh, next movie, which is Twilight Zone, the movie. All right. Twilight Zone, the movie is a 1983 science fiction anthology film produced by Steven Spielberg and John Landis based on Rod Serling's 1959 to 1964 television series of the same name. The film features four stories directed by John Landis, Steven Spielberg, Joe Dante, and George Miller. That is a hell of a directorial cast uh, or crew. Landis' segment is an original story created for the film, while the segments by Spielberg, Dante, and Miller are remakes of episodes from the original series. The film's cast includes another in Killer's Row, Dan Aykroyd, Albert Brooks, Getman Crothers, John Lithgow, Vic Morrow, and Kathleen Quinlan. Original cast members, Burgess Meredith, Patricia Berry, Peter Brocko, Murray Matheson, Kevin McCarthy, Bill Moomy, and William Shallert also appear in the film, with Meredith assuming Serling's role as narrator, Serling having died in 1975. The film's production achieved notoriety of the, of the wrong kind, when Morrow and two illegally hired child actors were killed in an infamous helicopter crash during the filming of a stunt for Landis's segment. The, two, the deaths led to several years of legal action, although no individuals were found to be completely liable. New procedures and safety standards were imposed in the filmmaking industry. Upon release, the film received mixed reviews with praise directed at Dante and Miller's segments, with criticism towards the segments by Landis and Spielberg. Despite the controversy and mixed reception, it was a commercial success Grossing $42 million on a $10 million budget. We're going to cut to the trailer, and we'll be back in a moment. On June 24th, four acclaimed directors... George Miller, John Landis, 
Joe Dante, and Steven Spielberg take you to another dimension. Welcome back to Literary License Podcast, and we're discussing Twilight Zone the movie. Let's start with you on this one, Keith. What are your thoughts on Twilight Zone the movie? I like Twilight Zone the movie. I the thing is, the only problem I really have is that Burgess Meredith. I love Burgess Meredith. This is nothing against Burgess Meredith. I'm a huge Burgess Meredith fan. Whether you know it's Twilight Zone episode where you know he loses his glasses, or whether he's playing um the penguin, or whether he's in foul play. So I, I I'm a Burgess Meredith fan but the the only i kind of wish what rewatching is that bridges meredith when he does his voiceover for the beginning of the episodes i don't understand why they, the episodes that they that he does the voiceover for are already episodes from the original twilight zone so in effect they could have used rod serling's voiceover to give that nod to rod serling because he passed on and because it's kind of watching Twilight Zone without Rod Serling. And you kind of need Rod Serling's voiceover. And I think Burgess Meredith does a good job. You know, there's nothing about him. But because the episodes that he does do the voiceover for are all episodes, these are remakes of Twilight Zone episodes. So that voiceover of Rod Serling's is there. They could have just used that. You know, and I kind of wish they did. Overall, I think I think the movie works on a lot of different levels. The only if I if I'm going to be very I think Joe Dante Spielberg Miller they all do a fantastic job. I think the reason why Miller does a great job is because he's out of his wheelhouse, and I kind of wish that Spielberg and Dante picked a story that wasn't so Spielberg or Dante at that time period. You know, something that something like like we got Spielberg in the eyes with Joan Crawford that we discussed in Night Gallery or. Spielberg and Duel, which are, you know, in the 80s, when you look at Spielberg, Spielberg had a formula that he was sticking to. And his in his segment, I love his segment. There's nothing wrong with his segment, but it is very Spielberg segment. It has that the music, the thingy, the the, the ode to childhood. And- it, it has the Spielberg schmaltz, you know? Yeah. And we, we when we were watching the movie last night, it actually stood out to me that you go from this very, very dark first story with Vic Morrow is a racist who has to, you know, get his, get his comeuppance. And we'll get into that in a couple minutes. Cause that unfortunately, because of what happened, that story had to be altered. Yeah. My, we pro- go my, that actually, my problem with that story is I love the, the Jewish segment of it. And I love the KKK segment of it. I think the Vietnam segment is totally wrong. Because American soldiers during that time, when you, when you, I mean, this is before Platoon. I mean, after Platoon, and you actually realize that the average age of these soldiers was 19. And they're on this, this, they're in this war situation that shouldn't happen. They weren't there to eradicate Vietnamese people. They were there to make peace that went horribly wrong. So I don't, know if, I don't know if that's a right. I don't know if that fits into the racist story that we get into. I was kind of confused by that too because I, I knew that he had a problem. I mean, obviously, fitting ending. I think Landis was an anti World War, uh, anti Vietnam person, and so that's why that was fed into this. 
But I think that Definitely. if you're if you're going if you're going for racism, I think that you could have. I think that there's enough racism and enough stuff going on in the world that I think it would have made more sense to maybe take the Vietnam part of it out and use something else. That yeah, the, they, they, they could have had um, Chi- Chinese people during what was going on during World War II. What was going on in this country would have been a better well, Japanese would have been more the Japanese. That was going on in America. Yeah, that, actually, that would have been. That they were put in det- you know, detention centers and stuff like that. Yeah. Or, or Italians and Irish people as they were coming to America, and basically we don't hire these people when that when that you know during the 1900s. Or I'm just saying there was a lot of horrible stuff that was going on I during think my the, grandfather's you know, radio during. This, um, yeah, but I, but I think by this yeah. point by. Ni- by 1983, I I don't know if the Italians and the Irish would have worked for what he was trying I to achieve. I don't think that would have worked for them. By the, 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 by, the 80s, would have by the 80s, the Italians and the Irish were kind of integrated into into everything. Yeah, by that time, by right. the 80s, they were. I'm just saying that because we, but I'm just saying that. You but know, this I was just, flashing back to older times, anyway. Yeah, yeah, but, what, but I, what, I, I don't, I just what don't think the current? Vietnam segment really works because it doesn't make a lot of sense. Because you got these soldiers, and they're they're fighting someone who thinks going to bomb them. Right, it's a, yeah. totally, it's a totally different, it's a totally different thing than Nazis putting Jews into concentration camps, and we know what happens there. And it's a totally different thing than the KKK lynching black people. But what, but what I'm getting at, as far as Italians and Irish, is would yeah. this character be rate? Would this character in 1983? have an issue with the Italians and the Irish. I don't, he's probably, well, I mean, we don't, we, we don't, don't really, really have it, but he doesn't really say too much about the Viet Cons. In, no, he doesn't. In his opening segment, really. I mean, no, he just, he, he says that he, he talks about people coming over from other, other places and taking over his job. Right. He says the blacks and the Jews are, you know, the, you know, the, the Jews have the money. So he kind of says that, but he doesn't really, he's not saying all oh, the Viet Cons are coming over and taking our job. Yeah, that's why no, it was, he, that, that was the one thing. Yeah. No, but he fought in Korea and he has racism against Asians from fighting in Korea. He does. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. But, but he, you know, he, call, he calls him the, uh, the, the Asian racial slur a couple yeah, of times. Okay. But he calls him that. But at the same time, I think that the I think that you could have found a better story to show that. Oh yeah, maybe yeah. Vietnam story because uh, the Vietnam the Japanese that, would have gone better, but he like he said he was a Korean war vet, so. But he, but even but even in Korea, I mean you know, I mean the Korea another is another American faux pas war, and you know it's you know that was uh, what the Korean depending on who you speak to and as far as American history is concerned, Vietnam and Korea are not considered wars. They're called disputes. Police actions. Too. Precisely. So, so it's very different. And so the thing is they weren't there because it wasn't. It's we just, had no rhyme or reason to be there, but we were. Well, so. it's a, it's a different, I mean, it's just, it's just a different scenario. American soldiers in Korea and American soldiers in Vietnam weren't there to eradicate the Koreans and kill Koreans right. off the face of the earth or kill the Vietnamese off the face of the earth. Well, they had to fight the Chinese. I know that. My father was in the Korean War. Yeah, but but you know, but that's that's against Chinese. It's not Korean. I mean, or but it's not, but it's not Vietnam. So yeah, I was kind of confused with that too. So that that kind of gave a confusing story. And the thing is, if that storyline wasn't in there, we wouldn't the the thing that happened would not have happened either. Probably. I'm just saying, but I I think that's where we get because Landis wrote this. Which should should we? 
And I think this has to do with his anti-Vietnam structure from the 60s that he, because right. he, he was very anti-Vietnam at that time. And he's protesting right. as a lot of people were. So I think he kind of fed that into. So, and I think that's the only thing that kind of lets this down a little bit. Because you've seen the Vietnam, it, it kind of throws you like, what? Well, it was supposed to end differently. It was supposed to end with Vic exactly. Morrow saving kids, two Vietnamese yeah. children. And yeah. obviously with the accident that happened and it's man that's so we just but we just ripped that fucking band-aid off but even with that ending it wouldn't got, give him a satisfying ending the ending that he has that he was forced to use actually is a better ending than it was that. a good ending i thought even if they were forced to use it yeah it would have felt weird to have the racist be redeemed at yeah. the end by saving kids i guess it's all well he learned his that's lesson true. to go on with life I think he. I. I don't. I mean, I don't know. I've I don't never read racist. This. I don't think racist people really redeem themselves. Really, if you're, if you're that strongly racist, I don't think. I don't. It's very. I don't. I mean, let's face it. I mean, people if you, if you get, if, people change. It's very rare that they change, though. If they're if they're if, they're, if it's that. I mean, his 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 racism was deeply rooted. Well, look at what they did to him, though, to get to that defining moment. It's sort of like a Christmas Carol. He had the three ghosts that visit, the four ghosts. Well, he's got these three experiences that are you know, detrimental to his racism. You know, but, maybe, but you know, I, maybe I, still, I don't I don't get the redemption story with him. But he would have had redemption because I, he was I, I, I think he had redemption because of what was going to happen to him, not because he he felt for Jewish. But he wouldn't have had to pick up those lot. two kids if you saw what was left of the footage, which is really bad. And you know, so, I hope they didn't suffer. That was awful footage. I think well, that no, they got happen. they got decapitated with the helicopter. Half the way, yeah. They that you can see the footage available. I hope is yeah they didn't suffer because that probably was instant. I hope so. <laughs> that was should we just should we just rip that bandaid off and talk yeah, about this? Off. Yeah. So Alanis is a piece of shit. <laughs> I'm, he's, yeah. he's an asshole. I'm sorry. He's I, an asshole. He doesn't I take know a lot of people for anything. Exactly and he's an asshole on the set. He didn't really do anything redeeming after that incident happened either. And he, got the whole thing he got all scot free. He got all scot free and tried to blame other people for his inadequateness. Yeah. The the health and safety people, the action people, the stunt people, everyone on that set told him that it wasn't safe because we just need to get this done. I don't care. Yeah. And then, and, and, then he, and then he man. walks off and goes into court and plays the victim card. Yeah. Never saying sorry. He never Big said move, sorry. No. no, no, nothing. No, nothing. He was and the, totally... the, the other the other thing that stands out is the children were not supposed to be there because they were not supposed to be using children after after a certain time. Right. And it was late at night. So he, were... so he literally hired two kids off the street. To come in and, and uh, promise their parents a fantastic night on a movie yeah. set. Can you imagine those? And the parents parent. were right there when it happened. Yeah, and, it's, yeah, and the parents, the children died. And the parents didn't know, knew little to no English. Yeah, isn't that something? And then when it all happens, he comes off and plays the victim card. It's like, oh, how his words are. If you look at his words after this happened. I can't believe this has happened. What's going to happen to my movie? Yeah. 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 <laughs> what? Wow. Mind blowing. I know. And yeah. there's the very tone deaf comments at Vic Morrow's funeral 
which is, you know, if there's anything we could look at, film is immortal and Vic is immortal because of his film work and whatever, whatever it was he said. And I'm like, dude, not the time, not the place. And to top this all off, you know who Vic Morrill's daughter is, don't you? I don't know. Jennifer Jason Lee. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. That's yeah. his daughter. I didn't know that. Okay. You know, so when he, so fortunately, Jennifer Jason Lee's had a fantastic career. We know who she is. But when you put in light that this is his daughter who would have been at that funeral at the time, and now this puts a human face on his family, it makes it even worse. Here, I got it. This is, this is the two parents. The parents of two children killed on the Twilight Zone movie set emotionally testified Thursday. They heard John Landis order the helicopter to keep going lower moments before it crashed. He kept screaming lower and lower. This is also specified that the special effects explosion that caused the helicopter to crash was bigger than the explosion they witnessed during the actual Vietnam War. <laughs> oh, fuck. So, yeah, he's that dick mode. And, 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 and this, is, uh, this is after the stunt people said... Don't you can't be doing this. You can't be doing this. You cannot be doing this. Yeah, this is and he was told repeatedly over and over. He had all kinds of warnings and he just but, but John Landis. I mean, my only problem with John Landis, I mean this, but unfortunately, because of this and everything about John Landis, every time I see Leonard Moulton, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. they do look a lot alike. That's a different person. <laughs> Because they looked a lot alike, unfortunately. I don't even think was there. There wasn't a real big payout for anybody either, was it? No payoff. They got off scot free. Accident. I think a lot of people. I think a lot of people got paid off. I personally think. And that footage is ungodly. And I have to sit there and say that John Landis got his director people all his director people, and Spielberg was one of them. All jumped forward to support him. Spielberg allegedly, and I don't know if this is actually true, but it's alleged that he was on set when the accident happened, and he apparently, uh, apparently, as soon as it happened, he he, again, allegedly, supposedly, the story goes, he told somebody, "I have to leave right now," and he bolted from the set. Yeah, somebody uh, else did not, too. But at the same good. time, he stuck up. A lot of those directors stuck up for him because they were all kind of the same pack at that time at that at that moment in time they're all kind of they all came up together didn't they at that time so i mean it didn't it didn't it didn't affect landis's career because he made films after this happened right he, he made some huge films after this happened yeah. so he he kept working it wasn't until he yeah, had, so steven spielberg denies allegations that he was present when vic murrow and two children were killed in a helicopter crash yeah and, it's it's an urban legend that he was there. That's why I said allegedly. I don't know for a fact that it's true. Well, the special um, effect people and the people working. I was never the at Indian said that Dunes. He was there, and he's saying that he wasn't there. So he said he was never at the Indian Dunes location at Twilight Zone. But then you got somebody in here says he was. Yeah, yeah. There's several people. Every, every, everyone was. that was working on the set that day says he was there. He says he wasn't. So, and I think that Spielberg in '83 was quite a big deal at that time. I mean, this is after Jaws. E. He got a $5,000. <laughs> I mean, people knew who Spielberg was at that time, so. They fined Landis $5,000 by the State Labor Commission. $5,000 yeah. for the price, for the cost of Vic Moore, a fantastic actor, and two illegal yeah. children that he brought on the set. To well, wait, wait, wait. Wait. What he, he, he illegally brought on the set. We don't know that they were 
in the country illegally. We know that they no, were hired probably, they were, illegal illegal children being on the set at that time. Yeah. I mean, not not yeah, the children being there was illegal. He was probably not obeying children's welfare work law. Oh no, he definitely wasn't. They told him they told him he can't do it, and they wouldn't let him use they wouldn't let him use union children. So he just literally went and picked up picked some kids off the street. Yeah, and, and, their told, and told and told his cast. I'm told his crew that anyone says anything, they'll never work in this town yep. again. That was uh, really sad, though. That was just such a senseless. That was senseless. I remember when that happened. Well, it kind of reminds me. There is there a Rod Serling court curse when it comes to movies? Because then we find out what happened. <laughs> yes, the, the, the one maybe the, John Landis will find a couple of earlier oh. earlier part, but not galleries. So I was like, Ooh. but. Saying that, though, I think Vic Morrow does a fantastic job. Yeah, he was excellent. He's always been a hardcore actor, though. Mm. I mean, the way it ended, though, was a good ending, too. And around I think, this I think time... Ending, I, think it gave, I think it gave it that pointed punch that it needed. Well, he wasn't coming back, and he could see his friends, and he was going away in the Nazi train car. Which, to be honest, I think that when people are that extremely racist, it's because all they're doing is thinking of themselves. They don't put their selfishness is pure selfishness. Well, you don't put your, you don't, you know, the problem is you got to put yourself in some other per person's shoes to totally understand what they're, you can't, you don't understand what anyone's going through until you live their life. So to make races, I mean, everyone, I'm sorry, but everyone's life is freaking hard and yeah. for whatever reasons. And, you know, and to sit there and sit there and say that because of other people that, you know, have it better than you. So therefore that your life is horrible. It's ridiculously stupid because everyone, everyone, has, have everyone has a freaking hard life and everyone has life and other people and people have different degrees of that, but it's not because of someone who ethnically, religiously, or sexually different from you. That's causing the heartaches in your life. It's well, just, that's, that's, that's the thing that, ev that eventually leads to, to bigotry of any kind is not being self-aware enough to realize the problems that you have are caused by your own actions. Yeah. That's or what eventually by your social economic system that you're in or the political structure that you may find yourself in. Because to be honest, everyone's struggling. Everyone's struggling and everyone's going through their own struggles. So and, in some form or another. But, but to but to blame a group of people for your struggles. I mean, the thing is, the people that you're blaming are having the same struggles that you have or you're having. They're having the same problems paying their bills. They're having the same problems keeping their jobs. They're having the same problems of, of keeping their heat on during the winter time. Everyone's got the same problem. So the sit there and think that you have it bad and someone else has it better is bloody ridiculous. And that, that, that's that's the fact of the matter. What was this? <clears throat> and that that is the fact of the matter that when uh when that uh how did the ending of the film change to be a tribute to the victims did i miss something was there something in the credits or i didn't see anything in the credits i watched it on youtube so i don't know what i mean they, there might be something i mean they have released a blu-ray of this so they may they might have added something because the blu-ray would have come out after the court case so they might have put something they might have put something, i don't remember anything in the original Release, oh, we still had kick the can too with the old folks. Hmm. Well, that that was the original point that I was going to make. Is we go from this very dark story to this very schmaltzy, sweet dark, story, violent world. <laughs> and Sean handed me a note 
because when we were watching this last night, the very next story, the Joe Dante story, when the kid gets hit by the car, he bursts out laughing. <laughs> I think just because of how the effect looked. And he handed me a note. It says the kid, the car, it works on so many levels. <laughs> that was the that was the kid that was the little but the telekinetic boy, right? That was it. Yes, and it, it, it's two Simpsons references in one because the Simpsons also did that. Story I thought it car. was funny when he got hit with a car too. And uh Sean Sean uh Sean's joke is about Homer Simpson when he when he sees the football in the groin and he just starts laughing and he goes, Oh, the football. The groin, it works on so many levels. <laughs> but yeah, the little kid getting hit by the car, Sean. Sean yeah, just had to be the well, then he turned into be a little bust, didn't he? Yeah, the kid, the car, it works on so many levels. That little kid, wasn't he? Was, was he in um, Dead, Dead Time Stories, another anthology? Something. What? It's driving me nuts. I'm going to look that up. I meant to do that yesterday. And I cannot remember that. I'm looking movie. right now. Twilight Zone, the movie. Uh, I think he did another anthology somewhere. Maybe creep I know that kid from something. What was it? Anthony. Jeremy Licht. What did he play in? Uh, he was not in Dead Time Stories. That's not one of the movies that I'm seeing here. Okay. I remember seeing him in something else. I wasn't quite you know, familiar. I mean, um, Jeremy Licht? That yeah, that's the kid. Uh, and, uh, and your name is Jonah, the next one to come back, kid. So nothing, I, nothing else I've seen. It Maybe. says movie on the movie. I guess he didn't really do a whole lot. He, he probably say he right I mean, the good thing about this Joe Dante episode anyway, but I mean, we did, you can tell it's Joe Dante because you get Dick Miller and you got Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> Literally what Sean and I said last night. This is definitely the Joe Dante one because it has all the tropes. Looney Tunes, Kevin McCarthy, and Dick Miller. Yeah. And I, I, I joke, maybe this is why Joe Dante doesn't make any movies anymore because uh, Kevin McCarthy and Dick Miller are dead. Mm. So he's like, I don't know anybody else. Well, another interesting thing, though, the girl playing Sarah, if you recognize her, she was the lead singer from The Runaways with Joan Jett. I knew that was. I was trying to place her. Yeah. That wasn't her. That's Sherry Curry. That's Sherry Curry. Sherry Curry. I didn't know that was her. Play Sarah, yeah. I didn't even pay attention to that. And uh, Miss Cox at the end of Kick the Can, that's Priscilla Pointer, who is the very asshole nurse in Nightmare on Elm Street 3. And she's also, at this time, Steven Spielberg's mother-in-law, because that's Amy Irving's mom. Yeah. <clears throat> they still married? No, no. He he had an affair with the girl from Jones in Temple of Doom. And Kate that, Capshaw, uh, yeah. Kind of broke up. They uh, ended up being no. They're still married. That's who she, he's still with her. They're still married. No, he's not married to Amy Irving. No, he got married to Kate Capshaw. Yeah, he had an affair with Kate Capshaw during Indiana Jones and right. Doom, and that broke up his marriage with Amy Irving. You men always dipping your stick in somebody else's oil. Apparently, this this kid was was also played Mark Hogan on the TV show Valerie, which I don't know, but that's. I've seen him somewhere else. He's he was been, on a hundred and ten Valerie was the Valley Harper show that they kind of brought out in the nineties, just before Valley Harper died, around that time. Uh, late eighties into the early nineties. Yeah, yeah. he was in yeah, hundred and ten episodes playing the character of Mark Hogan. Valerie, that's right. Yeah, I think I don't think it lasted that long. But it did not. Think. It did not. Anything it was else? Not for a season or two, at least four. 
Any, okay. any, oh, anything else, it's a TV show. It's, it's a TV series where he would have been in one episode. So if there's anything else you would have recognized him from, it probably would have been Valerie. Yeah. yeah I, I, then again, he's got one of those cutesy boy, you know, never-ending story phases, you know? Well, he also has that He also has that look at the time of the creep show kid as well. He has that same kind yeah. of look. Yeah. Maybe that's, that's what it is. That's what I was thinking of for a minute when you said that. I'm like, wait a minute. The kid who's, you know, Tom well, Atkins. That's who he looks like to me. Well, the, the, kid, the kid in Creep Show is Stephen King's son, Joe Hill, the writer. Yeah. So. Which, did you ever hear that that funny story of them going to a, to a drive-thru after leaving set and they both still had their makeup on? And because the kid had to have fake bruises on because Tom Atkins is abusing them, the person at the drive-thru called the cops on them because he thought that this kid was just being battered. <laughs> You guys ever heard that story before? I didn't hear um, about that. Yeah, that's legendary, uh, legendary story. Stephen King's told a couple times, I think. Oh, but yeah, uh, that that he wasn't married to a really young girl. I need to do that to my husband. <laughs> we'll go through a drive-through again. Gift just handed a sign. Help me. <laughs> you know, I will. I will say. I will say for this um, Spielberg episode of Kick the Can. Even though it's smalty and stuff like this, there is a heartfelt charm that kind of just makes your heart swoon. Yes. It's and the Spielberg yeah. smalts. It works. Yeah, and, I, and I do love that. I mean, I, you know, I kind of wish, I, I said before, I kind of wish he kind of went out of his wheelhouse a little bit. But I, but saying that, I started winning Scott Mancrathers. I mean, what a fantastic performance. Yeah, he's he's yeah. amazing in this. Oh, you know who really is is great? The little girl who plays the Jewish girl, uh, the Jewish woman. Oh my God, she... Tanya Fenmore! <laughs> that oh my God, she's so brilliant. I mean, she knocks this out of the park. I mean, I was like, the talk. I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, I just don't know what to say. It's like, where where in the hell did they find her? <laughs> She she was in Tales from the Dark Side, apparently. She was also in uh, Lisa, mm-hmm. which was, uh, I guess you could say a ripoff of I Saw What You Did, where she and Cheryl Ladd and another girl are calling are calling people randomly when they're uh, when they're at home and they accidentally call a killer. Oh, I, I saw what you did. No, no, it's Lisa is the name of the movie. Is oh. Lisa? Yeah, it's basically a ripoff of I Saw What You Did. <laughs> yeah, they, they call this guy, they flirt with him unaware that he's a, that he's a serial killer. You know what else that Tony Benmore did as well, which is quite interesting? I haven't seen it, but I was just looking through her CV. She did Mama's Family, you know, that one that's taken off to Carol Burnett. Yeah. Um, but, she, but she plays a young Eunice, mimicking Eunice, Carol Burnett. Oh, I've seen, I know, yeah, I've seen so I kind of wonder. I I, I kind of want to look at that episode because I'm because she hits this one out of the park. I wonder she might. I wonder if she's like a great mimic because I mean she had the I mean, she had this the accent. I mean it was like that character d- d- did shrink down. Out of all of them, that was the most successful. So. I, I, although as uh, as the old man, I really I, I really loved Mister uh, Mister Iggy. That was the one that I felt. I felt bad for him. He didn't get a chance to be a little kid. He didn't go. No, he well, didn't. He was one who left as a little kid. Either, I mean, there's so much. I mean, I know that it's Twilight Zone, and they kind of have to have that little spin at the end situation. 
But, you know, he's bitter because of the way his son treats him. You know, because the son, you know, it's like, and they, because they say about his character, which is really, really sad that every week his son comes to visit him and he packs his suitcases every week, takes his suitcases in, only to be have to bring them back in and unpack them week after week after week. Yeah, that uh, you, you do feel for him at that point. That is pretty awful. And, and I think that's where the story kind of suffers a little bit because. There is a reason why there's this bitterness with his character. And his bitterness is not towards, oh, trying to be young or anything like that. His bitterness is towards the simple fact that his family doesn't want him. So for him not to have any kind, you know, for him not to be able to be turned back or have anything at the end of the time, because at the end of the time, he does see sense and he does go, you know, take me with you, take me with you and all this other stuff. And he, you know, he's out kicking the can at the end. And I just think, I just, think that the he to make the story really work he should have been given that chance because they're he's not just some crossly old man that basically is just bitter on life you know what i mean there's a reason yeah. behind that you know because when scott mccrathers shows up and he's talking about living this is after his son has rebuked him numerous times over again and, and we see it at the beginning of the of the segment yeah, and 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 the, and, the, and the people in the home sitting there goes, he's gonna, you know, there he goes, taking a suitcase without there, like last week. Yeah, here he comes back, unpacking it like he does every single week, and it really is sad. It's very sad because I've seen that firsthand, and it is heartbreaking. They're just I've, some people are just forgotten, you know. I think I've seen, you know, this is horrible, but. I've met people who put their parents in a home because they wanted the expensive oriental rug that was on their parents' floor. You just never know what some people do. Yeah. I've, I've heard, you know, my father went before he died situation. He wrote, he wrote his letter and he said, when I die, there won't be any money left for you kids. And, you know, I'm donating my body to science. And me and I, Kim and I, we agreed. Basically, I sent my, you know, I taught my dad, I go, when you go, whenever that shall be, this is before you had cancer, three or four years before that happened. Right. I go, go out and spend your money. Go out and spend all of it. Enjoy your life. I, you, you know, you brought me up. I tell my parents. You, you, you know, you, you, you pay, you, you, you birthed me, clothed me, fed me. What else? I don't need anything. I'm a man now. I'm an adult. I can take care of myself. Go and spend your money and have fun, you know? And it's fun. And, and I've heard parents go, oh, they're spending. I heard kids go, oh, they're spending my inheritance. It's like, oh. it's not your inheritance. No. And, yeah. and that always sickens me. So when I see this in this thing here, it's that's so cold in my heart. It hurts. Right? I mean, it hurts when people get pulled, you know, get people, families put their children, you know. Okay. There's a difference between an elderly living center and there's and hospice care. First of all, I think that, you know, I think it's very important that. Yeah, you definitely have to make that. Yeah, because hospice is, you know, hey, look, he's too sick. You're waiting to die, basically. Well, I've done, I've done, I've done all I can in the home, but there's not much more I can do at the moment because he needs 24-hour medical care. Well, some people do, and it's sad, but. Yeah, you know, but that's the reason why hospice. An elderly community center where you're, where is because your children do not want to make room for you. And that's sad because for the 18 plus years, they made room for you. 
Yeah, my mom's 92 and she's still my best friend. So no. I was if my if my mom parent, my parents would drive me up the wall if they were still alive, but if they needed somewhere to live, I would make room for them. I would sleep I would sleep on the sofa and give them my room if I had to. In both of my parents' cases, my brother and I were there until their last breath. Like literally in both cases, we were we were in the, we were even in the hospital when they find when they finally passed away. I can't imagine doing something like this, put, putting your parents in a home. I can't imagine it. Not for the life of me. Yeah. And like Pete said, hospice care is different. The last three or four weeks that my father was alive, he was in, he, he was in, he had had a heart attack and he was in rehabilitation. So I would go see him basically every day. There was one day where we had like several feet of snow in New York and it was impossible to get around. Mm. But every every other day i i i made it there and i was trying every single day to get there if i if i had to work or if i had to do anything i i would let him know i'd try to see him late i had a friend of mine that was working there so he would get me in a little after hours if my father was still up and you know that my grandmother had alzheimer's and she was put into a special alzheimer's home situation and she didn't know who i was my father went and visited her every day and you know i went and visited her twice a week and I would just hold her hand and just read to her. And even though it was sad to see the decay and what was, you know, and what would eventually come, it's not a pleasant experience for anyone. No. But I can sit there and say that those times with her, I'm glad I had those. Yeah. You know, I'm glad I had I, you know, reading to her and you know, she she didn't know who I was. She didn't know who anyone was. There are, you know, there are times that she thought I was her. Apparently, I look like my grandfather. So there are times I would kiss her goodbye and she tried to slip me the tongue because she was caught in that time war. So that was a bit distressing for me. But saying that, you know, some of my best moments, when I think of her, you know, I think of her that and then she's going, I smile because I've had those moments. My, you know, with my father, similar, similar to yours, to, to your grandmother, when he was in a, when he was in a rehabilitation, those last few weeks of his life, he I had bought him a mini DVD player. Yeah, and I would uh, there was there were there were Italian channels on on cable, so I'd record all these movies for him off of different cable all all these different Italian movies. And I'd burn them on, I'd burn them onto DVDs so that he would have a little pouch with like each DVD would have like three or four movies on it, whatever I could fit on because he's watching on a tiny screen anyway, so it didn't right. matter what the quality was. The quality is going to look fine to him, but he liked taking that with him. And I brought it to him. I brought it to him there. And we just kind of sat up on the bed and we just watched some movies together. Yeah. That's you know, all they want. My dad's into telling stories right now. He like, it likes getting out of scrapbook and he wants to talk about the, the days gone by. And oh, that, that's all he wants to do now. I did that with my dad too. Cause like I said, my dad grew up in Italy during world war two. So I had my dad telling me stories of what life was like. You know, oh, my grandfather always talked about Italy and all oh. things that happened over yeah, there. And I think the sad thing is, I think we're losing some of that. We are definitely losing. I was because, talking to my mom because, about that. Children, you know, there is no oral tradition anymore with this generation. They don't. Well, we, we are who we are through the stories that our parents and our grandparents right. and their grandparents told them. And our lives are these stories that help shape and mold us. And that's, and I find it. It's kind of funny because last time I saw my dad, last time I was home, because I did, I, unfortunately I didn't get home when he got ill, um, but because he went quite quickly. But 
he gave me a DVD. My father really got into IT and he really enjoyed it. And he would, he made me a DVD. And basically it's all the old family photos from 1900 up until 1964. That would be cool. And he, and he set it to music and stuff like this. And it's a DVD and it's like, he put it together and I put it on. And it's like, you just, I see my grandmother and my grandfather growing up in adulthood and getting married and having their kids and so on. And it kind of stops when, before the grandchildren come in or my generation but you know i look at that and think christ you know it's it's excellent and and i have to say do those seeing my grandmother and distressing and my sister said the same thing because she took care of my mom when she died she had breast cancer and then went to remission and had brain cancer and then kind of went to nothing and she said and kim and i were talking just a couple of days ago and saying that even through this process and no, so distressing it is not the best time of your life or anything like that. But with that, with hindsight, I can definitely smile about all that. But yeah. I didn't do that. And, you know, oh, least, yeah. and, you know, and getting back to kick the can. And when you see that situation happening, I would, I think to the end to kick the can the best way possible, it's to have something happen to that. I would love to see his son and that bitch of a wife, and those horrible grandchildren get in a car accident and died. And I, that would <laughs> that would actually made me feel better about this episode. Because the thing is, yeah. there's no the thing is, I understand the way he feels. And he's bitter. He's bitter about all this thing because it's like, you know, Forgot. he's forgotten. He's a forgotten person. And for a son who's a lawyer, obviously you got to be a lawyer, not because he, he worked got money for college. Obviously, he probably worked so his son can sit there and you know put him through sit everything he can. To put him through school to a successful lawyer because we find that out as well and he just forgets about him and so that's the only thing about this segment that doesn't work is that to have this kind of weird of. Ending. but the thing is there is a reason why he feels this way and this comes right off the time on the same evening that he's been rejected again by his family so the payoff does the payoff is not as good as the payoff should have been Personally. Yeah, I could have dug on the family going off a bridge or something. Yeah. As merit. <laughs> From that, we move on to this little shit who's holding his family hostage. Oh, the little fucker with the. Yeah. I, I, I love the Bill. I love the Billy Mummy. You know the original anyway, and it's good to see that uplifted and rerouted to a folk. Yeah, that was the thing that really stood out to me is Dante made this one his. Yeah, this was absolutely a Joe Dante piece. What's your, what's your first inclination? What's a joke? Well, I mean, the, just the just the incorporation of the Looney Tunes and everything. I know. As soon as you see the Looney Tunes, it's like, yeah. Well, he's he, you know he's he's getting to do this for Warner Brothers, so he's like, yeah. hey, let's have some fun with this. Yeah, it, that that was kind of a fun, traumatic little psychotic episode of you know the movie. I had to bet. I mean, I felt bad. I I the woman at least was smart because she knew how to work the kid. All these, all these guys were sucking his ass for the whole movie because they were afraid of him. When we put you in front of on the TV, his sister, or what the, the kidnapped pseudo sister he put on TV. I guess he killed his family before he stole all these strangers. Yeah, that he'd steal these strangers and recreate his family. But, yeah. see, but he, this is another one of these weird kind of stories because he gets away with it. Yeah, yeah. he's a little bit. It's funny because when I saw this, I saw this originally when it first came out. And I and I enjoyed it. Right. But seeing this as an adult, you kind of see things with different eyes. And you think it's like, and Kathleen Quinlan's character, 
where yeah. she was like, you know, oh, you're going to come with me. And you're thinking to myself, like, is she taking him to make him a better person? Or is she taking him so she can, like, use his gift? Well, her, well, her life is boring. Remember, her life is boring, and she wants more better than the same old, same old, you know? Well, it means that basically she's going to, like, you know, what's she going to do? Is she just going to, like, use his gift so that way she never has to work again? Because he can wish anything into fruition. Well, yeah, basically. Wouldn't you? I'd grab that kid. I mean, the kid, what the kid needed was basically a good old fashioned spanking. That's what he needed. He needed his ass beat hard. Because he needed someone to paint his burn door red like a big dog. Well, Absolutely. he his parents or gets rid of them or wishes them away or what may have happened. We're not quite sure. We see what happens to his new made family that he's taken off the streets and kidnapped. So she we, find, make so we see what he's done with them, but he doesn't feel bad about it. That's the thing. He doesn't feel bad about it. So what's going to stop him from doing that again? (laughs) He's a psycho. He's what he is. Can you imagine? He's a little Jeffrey Dahmer in the making. (laughs) Well, I mean, well, at least he was creative how he killed the pseudo sister. You know, he had her running in the car. Do you want to say fall on her or some shit like that? Well, t- but the thing is, it wasn't it wasn't a normal Looney Tunes cartoon. It was one of those horrible. It was one of those horrible flat Max Fleischer's yeah. shirt cartoon, which is even worse. Yeah, and I mean, we 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 gotta we gotta say you know this this movie kind of kind of crawls so that you know eventually you get Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Space right. Jam, Looney Tunes back in action, which incidentally was directed by Joe Dante. So. This movie's kind of the precursor of those. Before I forget, I meant to ask you guys, because I can't remember off the top of my head. Did Spielberg do Amazing Stories? Yes. Okay. Those were great. I, just, I loved Amazing Stories. Yeah. I mean, I, I love them, too. This made me think. I was trying to find Amazing Stories after I watched this, because I kind of wanted to revisit them. Oh, you know, like the guy stuck in the gut, the gunner, the underbelly of the plane, and yeah. he has to imagine the, the big yellow tire. The big so cartoon can, tire, yeah. The, the yeah. That just uh, stuck out my mind. Did like, Dante yeah, do one too, uh, was he doing Tales from the Crypt? I thought he was doing Amazing or Stories. Both. No, uh, Tales from the Crypt was um, Robert Zemeckis, Joel, Joel Silver, yeah. okay. uh, Walter uh, Walter Hill. That was that crew. Yeah. I knew it was Zemeckis. I didn't know about the other one. Huh? I mean, Zemeckis was also a, Spiel- a Spielberg protege, so... It's a, it's it's amazing how you know they they all come out of these camps because uh, Dante and Landis were I think both Corman guys. Was Landis, Landis a was guy? Landis was Landis was part of that. I think I I think I I believe that there's like Brian De Palma. They're all kind of like in that same kind of group that kind of right. Yeah, like, they were because remember we interviewed Jennifer Saul. She said that they were their own little troop there for a while. Their own little clique. Yeah. Scorsese, De Palma, those guys who were like seen as like I guess maybe more the auteurs. Though the Landis always made more kind of popular comedies. I mean, when you look at Landis's career, you know, w- think what you will about him as a person. With this right. movie, you have Animal House, Blues Brothers, right. Trading Places, Three Amigos. The so Twilight um, Zone really didn't hurt him. No, no. Not as far as his career because he was still working. Up, it really wasn't until he had a string of bombs in the nineties that his career kind of took like a downturn. Because he had Innocent Blood, which bombed, right? 
Beverly Hills Cop 3 bombed. Yeah, that um, one wasn't as good as the other two. Blues Brothers 2000 bombed. Yeah. And that's where, like, that's where suddenly Hollywood's like, yeah, we don't need this guy. That's, that's it. Vic Morrow, at this point in his career, was doing, like, cheap, low-budget movies. Because he was in, like, Mad Max ripoffs in Italy, like, yeah, he was, wasn't Bronx he? Bronx Warriors and Escape from the Bronx and stuff like that. That's the stuff he was doing around this time. So I think Vic Morrow saw this as like a possible start to a resurgence. And, yeah. You know, I think that's how he saw it. it was, this is going to be my resurgence. But yeah, I guess uh, that brings us to the last one, which we haven't talked about amazingly. Right. Which is this is the winner of all of them, really. I think, I think this delivers on every single thing, especially like the, with the ending. And everything, I think. Yeah, well, yeah, we didn't talk about the wraparound, the right. wraparound either, which I guess we could talk about at the end. But yeah, this is George Miller's uh, story, which is the remake, a remake of the William Shatner episode of uh, of the Twilight Zone, where he's he's a guy on a plane who yeah sees the monster, he's freaking out, thinks he sees a man on the plane. Ooh, excuse me, thinks he sees a man on the plane and. Turns out to be a gremlin, and nobody believes him. And the like, no lightning struck the plane, so that's that's what caused. He's out there pulling the engine apart. He knows what he sees. Goddamn <laughs> it! Like picking it up like this, <laughs> and then hugging it at the engine. <laughs> I mean, this would not work without John Lithgow giving no, a fantastic performance, like he does. And everything he does. He does panicked and paranoid like none other. Have you ever noticed? Maybe he it's just his face so on the. Yeah, I was gonna say his face looks so pale and clammy. Like this I is mean, a guy. He does who crazy paranoid, really good. Utterly terrified. He's utterly terrified, and it it works so well. I love I love the little girl in the seat next to him, just giving him shit the whole time. Just <laughs> 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 really great stuff. Yeah, this one this one really is one of the better, one of the better. Yeah, this movie does actually. I still like the Captain Kirk one. Yeah, oh, yeah. Every- but you know the thing is about the funny thing about the George Miller is he's Australian, right? And of all of these episodes, all of these segments, this is probably the most American one. Which is kind of weird in a weird You're way. You're probably right, actually, when you think about it. So, and it kind of reminds me, of, you know, it's kind of like you know Paul Verhoeven looking at American culture or something. Like kind of get the kind of get this all about American movie from like this foreigner, or if you look at like all some of the greatest American movies that really like happily American are normally done by foreign directors. It's Nowadays, at least, because I think what happens with the American directors is we is they get too caught up in the history of Hollywood and wanting to and wanting to be referential to other things, whereas these foreign directors are just coming in going, "Hey, I got these." 25 fantastic ideas and that's what we're going to do and with paul verhoeven more more so than 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 even george miller paul verhoeven then we can sit there and say that for 1984 the creatures and the special effects are really well done in this i mean which is quite good i mean because normally around this they were quite good actually they can be appropriate this time in this time so but when you look at who you have behind this movie, you know, they're all great filmmakers. Yeah. So you, they you, they're, all had a spark. They definitely had the spark. Like with movies now, like there are times where there were a couple movies last year, like The Flash and um, Ant Man Quantum Mania, 
where we look at the effects and I'm like, somebody put this together and thought it looked fine. Then other people had to look at him with a straight face and say, this is acceptable. These effects are acceptable. Right. These four directors, none of them would have accepted that. No, they, they were sticklers for no, this has to look good. I think they go on the premise that they think we're not going to notice. Well, I think now they go off the premise of what are you going to do? Not watch it. Fuck you. I think that's, I think that's the premise now. That, that too. I, yeah. Cause I feel like, I feel like nowadays it's, we want to get that big first weekend pop. Yeah. And then if, if you don't like it, well, we already got your money anyway. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then that's what I think we're at now. And I also think that you have to remember in the eighties, I think things are a bit different because there's a hell of a lot more output in the issues. A lot of output. I mean, the best thing to do if if you're really into like eighties horror, let's sit there and say, for instance, watch YouTube movie timelines where he reviews every movie, every horror movie in the eighties. And the thing is, he, you know, he's, he's at eighty two at the moment. He has divided into like ten parts just to be able to. I fit have not found in. him on YouTube yet. <laughs> Oh, it's, it, he's excellent. He does. He, he reviews every single '80s horror film, and and he, he does it by year. So he did 1980, 81, 82. He's you know he's up to like part nine at the moment. He's only up to like May. <laughs> and, <laughs> he he and he told an hour and a half. Didn't films about Twilight I watched it last night after the movie, mm-hmm. and, and and as always, Lloyd's the best thing in it. Yeah. yeah. Lloyd Kaufman at the end of it says, you know. If I would have made a movie where somebody got killed, I don't know, I'd be selling shoes or I'd be selling hot dogs or I'd be yeah. blowing my fucking brains out, but I certainly would not be making movies anymore. Yeah. Mm. And I've been on trauma sets and Lloyd is what he that that sign he posts is the truth about how he is. Safety to humans in big letters, safety to people's property in slightly smaller letters then make a good movie is the smallest because what matters most is making sure everybody on that set is safe. And Lloyd has been very, very, very careful. That's why everybody loves him, dude. Mm. <laughs> yeah. He, but, he he really stands by that. Debbie Rashawn, she had an incident uh, like 15 years ago where she had she had an accident on a, on a movie that didn't have insurance. And really? Yeah, that did. Man, that 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 really like... That really messed things up for her for a little while. Gosh. I uh, I thought they were supposed to be bonded or, or something because we, um, we did a short that we had to have all kinds of insurance up. Our yeah, we had, we had it. I think our insurance cost us 600 for to be shoot. So, yeah, I mean, well, well no, I mean, you got people who are making movies that have no business making movies now. Like anybody who has anybody who has, a, you know, a video camera can technically make a movie and get it released. Right. Doesn't necessarily mean they know what they're doing. Doesn't necessarily mean that they're bonded. Doesn't necessarily mean like. Well, we couldn't use guess, locations without a bond. No, so. that's that's yeah, yeah. If you're lose, if you're using like the city of New York, you could shoot for free, but you have to have insurance. Like, and that's that's the way. Like, or just hope you don't get caught doing it. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing if you're a twenty year old film student, but if you're you know you're a real filmmaker, you should yeah, have. You can't do that. Making movies isn't cheap and it shouldn't be as cheap as it is. I, I feel like if it wasn't as cheap as it is, we'd get a lot higher quality output. Yeah, but you know, I, I, I can tell like on Tubi, for instance, who made a movie with this, you know? Oh, yeah. 
Oh yeah. I mean, it's so obvious. I mean, I can't get through it. Most of them. Yeah. I try because I want. I figured if somebody actually donated their time to make a movie, I'm going to try to watch it. You know, but some. Well, if you want to go through torture, watch watch all the numerous different Amityville movies. I can't do it. I've tried. I can't sit through them all. I can tell in 10 minutes whether I can. You know, you know what the real problem with that is? If somebody actually has a good idea for an Amityville movie and actually has the means to pull no it one's gonna watch it correctly, no one's going to watch it now because you have all these people that have completely flooded the market with it. And that's it. I was wondering what the fuck that was like on Tubi and on, on another like Freebie or whatever. Millions of Amityville. And I'm just going. Look, where did Jay Hansen didn't write all this shit? It's like, where the fuck is all this? No, stuff? well, what happened is somebody around 10 years ago discovered you can't copyright a town's name. So as long as you don't use the story about the DeFeos, right? You're fine. Amityville, this, the, this, the Amityville, that. Amityville, well, the second called, one, I mean, that's the reason why they changed the DeFeos name, isn't it? So as you were saying, so yeah, there's a, there's a, actually, there's a really good documentary to totally go off the Amityville, the Twilight Zone. There's a really good documentary. It's a four-part documentary about the Amityville. It's called Amityville. Amityville. Can't remember the second. There's no. But Is basically, that with, the, with the son, the, the boy talking about everything that happened. Yeah, it, talk, it has the son. It deals with the yeah. lots. It deals with um the the fail murders. It's it's a four-part yeah. documentary. That was actually a good doc. Very good documentary. I highly recommend it. And I couldn't it, stop yeah, watching. It, it, it does weigh up both sides. It weighs up the yeah. Germans that dealt with the Lutzes. There's a deal it deals with the inside um George Lutz's mind and the, the abuse that was going on there and what happened yeah. to the kids afterwards. And it's a really good documentary. So it's well well it was pretty it was pretty eye-opening a little bit because you could see where some of that would have made sense when he was talking. Well, it seemed like once the who are that? Who's that demonic couple that go around? Yeah. Once oh, they the, got called, that's kind of when it all kind of blew up into yeah, something. The, oh, the, 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 yeah, the, the Warrens. The Warrens, yeah. Those two, those two hucksters. I still to this day, I, I I haven't figured it out yet about them. I met them a long time ago in New Hampshire, and I I that back then when you're an amateur ghost hunter, that was fucking god. Okay, <laughs> it's like a breathing Lorraine. The Warrens. That's their name. That yeah, but um. I just, you just never, they made 80 grand off of that. Like, like the one in, in England, they made $80,000 off of that exorcism in the UK. Mm. So, I mean, I imagine you have to have a fee mm. sometimes, but no. the church even told them, no, 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 no. So I've never figured out really, I, I want to believe that some part of them was honest. But I do believe they capitalized on stuff on the same token. So, well, they were honest. Where the fuck are they now? They're dead. dead. <laughs> yeah. Well, communicate with us, assholes. <laughs> I mean, um, I think. I mean, I think that whether whether this thing is true or false or anything that there is, the thing is though, I think that if you work in that kind of a field, I think that. In order to keep your livelihood and the money coming in, you kind of have to market it to the nth degree. Well, that's like ghost adventurers and ghosts and other ghost guys. They they kept saying, no, nothing here. Well, no, every stop watched their fucking show. So then they had to go around and say, you know, say, oh, there's something here. There's something there. Not to mention, we were in a place down in Liberty, Texas at the Ottawa Hotel. Ghost adventurers had been there. Taps wasn't there. But Ghost of, and they told me that all they were there for like 20 minutes. They took their footage, 
did this, did that a couple times in their video. And then they just, it was all folk. Well, it's all smoking years and the thing is. It was also, then I was, I was like, God dang it, they had me going all those years. I mean, all those haunted programs that you see in their own, like, oh, those are totally dark. Derek and Derek, Derek likes Dick. And and they, and they all and they all have and they all have like their most on it. They're in the dark and they're they got that you know that nightlight thing on them and they're like oh my god hysterical. I hear something. At least at least the phony mediums in the 1800s had to work for it. Yeah, that was oh always, my like, god. They, they show up, they do the, ah, they have somebody else shoot the footage. They're yeah. on set all of for all of you know two hours and then post production. Yeah. <laughs> Magic, man. That's it. Adds, adds in the knocks. Well, it's well. I don't understand how you can go to places like Fred- or da- down down in Fredericksburg in Texas and, and go to some of those hospitals because I've been there. We got stuff. I don't know what you have to fake in some of those places. I was scared. Yeah, but the, but the I thing is, scared. you have to remember that you know we're living in an age of reality television, which isn't reality. No, I know. You I've know, got as, a, as I tried to explain to someone. Like, let's take a housewife program, for instance. If you're looking at a one camera show and people are having an argument and the camera is not going like this back and forth, but you're getting people's reactions and then you're getting cuts of people's That's what reactions. it's all about is reaction. That means that basically they, you know, after the argument happens, they go, okay, stop. Okay, now reaction. Let's film this. Stop. Your, retar- your, your retaliation. Stop. And now we're going to slice this together. And that's reality television. Yeah. Not reality. <laughs> oh, a lot of people haven't deciphered that. Though, as a like, yeah, but you know, but I, I mean, you know, the wraparound though, what I like about the wraparound in Twilight Zone is uh, is good seeing Albert Brooks. Yeah, we I mean, didn't one, really uh, talk about Dan Aykroyd in the beginning. He turns yeah, this, into the this, this was all fluff, but whatever, you know, yeah. it's, it's I think fun. it worked because it, and the weird thing you're kind of seeing it, you're kind of. I think this is this is what makes to be honest, it's that wraparound that actually makes this work as a whole because you kind of get lulled into this thing with Dan Aykroyd and you're watching it and you're enjoying right. you're seeing Dan Aykroyd be Dan Aykroyd you're seeing Albert Brooks like, and you feel like they're so naturalistic in their performance and stuff like this you know and they're you know they're doing that thing like oh name that name this tune what what tv show came through and you're, yeah yeah and you're kind of diving that you got Creedence Clearwater Revival playing, you know, with John Landis would eventually rip off again for American Marvel from London. <laughs> but you kind of, so you're watching this and it's like, and then of course, you know, it gets into this thing. And then you get the wraparound with Dan Aykroyd picks up John Lithgow. And I thought, to be honest, for a wraparound, this is probably one of the most successful in anthologies. Yeah, because it doesn't do, God, we're going to talk about this a lot with, uh, with the Abacus movies, because it doesn't do the, you're already dead ending. That seems to be every anthology movie. You're already every dead. anthology movie. The twist at the end is you were already dead the whole time. Mm, true. So I think I think that I think that wraparound works very very well. I was quite impressed with that wraparound. And they do kick back around to it at the end of the uh, the George Miller segment where Dan Aykroyd is the you know the uh, the EMT in the ambulance. He goes, "Hey, you want to see something really yeah. scary?" Yeah. <laughs> And he, and he kicks I it off. And, and we get Creedence Clearwater Revival coming back, kicking back in. Yeah. So.
So, but yeah. yeah, it works o- overall. I feel, you know, I, you know, I guess before I start saying what I overall feel about it, I guess we just rate it and talk about it. I guess that will start with you, Keith. I'm going to give it a, you know, thing is the movie is very, very enjoyable and you do watch it. And I enjoy, I enjoyed the whole movie. You know, I kind of wish that, you know, they would have brought Rod Serling's voice back from the the, the original Twilight just to highlight it only because it, I because yeah, I, the Twilight Zone is really nothing without his com- without his voice. And I think that would have been a nice nod to give this a perfect five. Was there a reason why they didn't? I mean, maybe maybe the vi- maybe the videotape that they're using, maybe the tape wouldn't. I mean, at this point, that's true. We didn't Twilight have Zone, all the Twilight Zone would have been. Twilight Zone, a TV show, would have been done in TV mono. This would have been stereophonic sound because it's... Uh, you could have implicated anything with AI. So, so maybe so maybe if they tried to stereophy his voice, maybe there's a lot of crackle and hisses. Maybe there's no way... That's what I was saying. They didn't have all the, the goodies we got. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, today they'd be able to digitify that. I mean, I've seen... Yeah. I had the Blu-ray series of the original Twilight Zone. Beautiful. It would have been a nice sound. Great. Looks fantastic. You know, the, you know, they're able to do that now. 83, maybe not so much. And maybe there's, you know, who knows what the masters were like at that time before they actually did clear them up. But saying that, I think it, I think it's a solid movie. I enjoy it. I could, you know, I will probably go out and buy a copy of it. I saw it when it first came out. I haven't seen it since. And I enjoyed it. I think, you know, great solid cast, got some fantastic people in it. And there are some things that are a bit nonsensical that don't really make sense. But overall, I think it delivers. So I'll give it, I'm going to give it a 4.5. And how about you, Vicky? I was going to give it a 5, but then Keith brought that Viet Cong thing to mind. <laughs> and it doesn't make sense to me because it doesn't make sense to me. Like I said, if it was Korean or maybe Japanese, I would get it. But Vietnam, I don't know, maybe we're closer to Vietnam back in the 80s. And that's why he chose Vietnam and not another war. I mean, yeah. this, I mean this, this did come out before Platoon and all the other Vietnam movies that we would yeah. We actually got more of a fuller because in 83, when it came to Vietnam, we had an idea, but we didn't have people's real stories. I mean, we had Apocalypse wow. Now, which was, which was, but it wasn't based on. But we have what well, we had Walter Cronkite showing what he could after he told the kiddies to leave the living room during the. Evening. But I think Oliver, I think Oliver Stone changed their view on Vietnam because I don't. Yeah. And I don't think that I think we I don't think we fully understood. I know we got photo footage and we kind of knew it, but we didn't know the ins and outs, and we didn't realize exactly. So talk to a few veterans. And then after Hamburger Hill and Stanley Kubrick's film and Platoon and, of course, the Casualties of War and all the Vietnam movies that we would get after the point, we kind of have a better understanding of what's went on. But in 83, I think we were just, you know, I think a lot of people are opposed to the war justifiably, but I don't think us as a people, I don't think we had a full understanding of it. I don't Not think, yet, yeah. I think you're correct on that. But I was gonna give it a I'll give it a solid four point five. I think it's a great film. I think it stands the test of time. I think Twilight Zone will always stand the test of time, right from the series to the movie. You know, same with Night Gallery. This this you can't replicate these things and make them as good as they were back then. I love the opening credits though when they get when the Twilight Zone theme came up and you saw the visuals. That was fantastic. Yeah. So they did it. give us that. Yeah. As for myself, um, I I will probably give it about a four. There, you know, 
it's a staple of TV for me when I grew up. It was on it was on WPIX a lot back then. I remember WPIX out of New York? Mm. Yep, it was WOR TV. WOR was Channel Nine. WPIX was Channel Eleven. Yeah, WOR was. Which one used to have the Million Dollar Movie? I watched Million Dollar that I don't know. every weekend. I know WOR was out of out of Secaucus, New Jersey. I remember that. You're right. You're right. But yeah, I absolutely. They get me a little homesick here. (laughs) I start thinking. I'm I'm starting to feel it a little bit. But I mean, if we go back now, the TV's not going to be anything like this anymore. It's going to be generic. Yeah, you know that. You you know it'll be it'll it'll be episodes of Highway to Heaven. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, I'm going to start. That's what it used to be. I like that. There's a lot of episodes of Highway to Heaven, a Little House on the Prairie, and then the Walton. It's my go-to when Scott has the news on, and I have to do la 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 la. Doctor Quinn, uh, yeah. woman. <laughs> I remember. I remember. WPIX was New York's movie station. Yeah, I remember that. I just it's like CBS out of Atlanta, WGN out of Chicago, WPIX out of New York. We used to get the little TV guide out to see what was on every week. Remember the TV fucking guide? How primitive. Now I'm definitely aging myself. I um, I used to go through when I was learning about movies. When I was first like realizing that I really loved movies, I would go through the TV guide in the back. It would have the index of just the movies that were on. I'd go through the index and I'd I'd circle the ones that I wanted to that I wanted to see. But at least you know what the TV guide is. My kids are like, "What? You had a magazine to tell you what was?" I I miss the TV guide because I would go through the TV guide like Joe and I would circle everything I needed to see that week. I used to do that. We all did that. I thought I'd look through it and be like, "Oh, Vincent Price. Oh, Lon Chaney. Oh." You know, James Stewart. Okay, I can't. But the channel things, the little channel thingies, used to always confuse me. I couldn't tell which was my town. The the numbers, the channels, because they were like three and four and five channels, like four, five, seven, eight. Oh, I never had a problem with that. I always knew, but that was the nerd in me. So you're definitely same here. Nerdier than me at that point. Yeah, same here. I was very. I was the nerdy. I always knew. I always knew where to find what channels were. I mean, that was streaming services, which I've helped Vicky with the streaming services here in Dallas, and she's been here her whole most of her life. I arrived within a week. I know. I go, go, what are you doing? Like blowing up your Roku? Because I didn't even know a couple of them. (laughs) There's thousands of apps. I probably you'll be disappearing again in another hour. (laughs) So yeah, this is a staple of my childhood. I used to watch it all the time when it came on. And then, you know, New Year's Eve, they would have the, the Twilight Zone marathon where they show a bunch of the old episodes. Yeah. Uh, I really love it too. But it really wasn't until I got cable that I really started watching the TV series as much. Yeah. Because it wasn't playing on TV that often when I was a kid. I remember there, there would always be the Twilight Zone marathon every year on, on New Year's Eve. I don't remember it playing outside. Uh, Fourth of July. I don't remember it outside of that. But yeah, I greatly enjoy this movie. It has its... You know, it has its downsides. Obviously, you know, people died making this movie that it's, it's so sad. It's just so it's 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 forever. T- it has put a stain on the movie forever, though. Oh, it definitely I does mean, because you can't really talk about this movie without you can't think about, about it without thinking about Vic Moro and those two children. You just hate them. Every time I turn it on, I go, oh, "This is where they buy the farm." You especially know? now in the in the age of the internet where we've now seen the footage and it's out there and it's in yeah, documentaries it's brutal. It's on YouTube. Like this YouTube videos, like the 100 most gruesome deaths yeah. on camera and it'll be on there. 
You know, yeah. it's just a shame that it's, you know, that, that that's the society we live in. And it is quite a shame that the movie opens with this as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I was kind of thinking when I first saw it that they would probably do it like the second or third. Mm. No. Even watching it again, because I totally forgot it's been some years. I forgot that was the first entry to the anthology. So. Yeah. As soon as I saw Vic Moore, I was like, oh, shit. So. No. Of course, I immediately went up and looked the footage up to refresh my memory. I, I forgot that Stephen Williams was the black guy at the bar. I'm a morbid. Yeah, Stephen. That's yeah, he was. Stephen, a pre twenty one Jump Street. Stephen Williams is the black guy at the bar who's telling Vic Morrow to shut up. Yeah, that's him. Yeah, that is. Yeah, that. Stephen Williams from Twenty One Jump Street. Yeah. Jason goes to hell. Oh shit! I didn't know that. Now I got to go back and look up a thing. I didn't even. I didn't ever. Well, I try. I, I, I now that you said it, now I read. I, I watched him. I couldn't figure out who he was. Now that you said it's like now nah, and everything's done. Boo boo boo! It's clicking the place. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's uh. It's still it's still an interesting movie. It's still a fun movie to watch. It's you know you, you just gotta get through that dark. You just gotta get through that real life darkness that's 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 associated with it. Yeah, but you have well, double dark room. because people die. <laughs> well, I mean that's what I'm, that's the darkness that I'm talking about. I'm not even. But to be dark- honest, I think if you're not a, a cinephile like we are, I think most people will probably watch it and not even know anything about it. So well, this is our podcast later. first. I guarantee you, my daughter, she watches the 1983 Twilight Zone, has no clue that Nick Morrow and two children were decapitated by a helicopter blade. Uh, probably not. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I know when the movie. I know when the movie, when the movie was released, Entertainment Tonight was on it, and they kind of mentioned it. But when the movie was released, it, they didn't really. It was all over the it, news. It was, if it, you remember when it happened, though, it was all over CBS. It kind of was, but but it kind of was. But then the movie, then the movie came out six months later, and it's kind of like you didn't hear shit. You know, about, well, they it, did. And the say public, you kind of forgot about it. They know? did say something when it was released. I remember that because mm-hmm. I, I didn't think they were going to release the movie, and then it was out. I lost track of it. Yeah, and that's like, oh wow, that that, that movie. And it took yeah. about twenty. It took twenty years for it to get to court. I think it took a long time. It was what. I wasn't twenty years, but it, it it was at least by the late eighties. I think is when it was, when it was at least by then. It least. took some time to get there, though. There was a lot of extensions going on. So. So yeah, I guess uh, that brings us to the end of uh, of literary license for this week. I'm going to throw it to Keith, who's going to uh, tell us uh, or tell you what's going on otherwise uh, with the podcast, other episodes we got coming up. Take it away, Keith. Yeah, so this brings us to the end of the literary license podcast. Unfortunately, Doctor Who, due to illnesses, will not be continuing on with their um, series. 
this month, but they will continue with a double dose ser- um, episodes next month. We'll be covering the Celestial Toy Maker, the Gunfighters, and they will also be covering, uh, da, 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 sorry, the storylines of the Savages and the War Machines. But for our special listeners out there who are big fans of Doctor Who, we do have an interview that was released um, earlier this week with Ian Britton Hall, who is the stunt coordinator and the stuntman for Tom Baker in Doctor Who. Give give that interview a guys to listen to. It gives you a lot of background history. And we also have a bunch of our viewers gave us questions to ask him and their answer those. And the Doctor Who crew will be doing more interviews. So watch their website and you can find them on Facebook, the Wuhuians podcast. And they'll be able, they'll be running things on there where you can ask questions that they'll start asking some of the people who worked on Doctor Who. And, and these guys know their stuff. <laughs> yeah. But of course, this brings us to March, and March will be coming our animation with reality, and we'll be covering Who Censored Roger Rabbit, which is the Gary K. Wolf film from 1981, novel from 1981, which they turned into Who Framed Roger Rabbit in 1988. Batman will also be continuing with four more episodes. We'll be covering Time Two Out of Joint, Catwalk, Bane, and Baby Doll. And Two for One will be back. We'll be covering two animation and real and live action with Bedknobs and Broomsticks from 1971 and Enchanted from 2007 where John Wilson will be coming back to our crew again and of course Anthologies will be coming back with Amicus which will be doing Dr. Terror's House of Horror from 1965 and Torture Garden from 1966 Speaking of Burgess Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So it's good night for myself good night Joe good night everyone good night Vix Good night, everyone. See you next week for Who Framed Roger Rabbit.
great fear of approval when Mr. Miller, who was about to take a trip into oddness and obsolescence through a zone whose boundaries are that of imagination, accompanying him on this journey is the mesmerizing sound of the twilight tone.